Hey Strangers, welcome to episode 52, season three, The Strange Sessions. Most of the time, oh. I'm Krista. Kurt <laughs> just dro- hurt himself. I just dropped my phone on my balls. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> Ow. Um, okay. Okay. We're off to a rough start. Yeah. <laughs> Are you okay, Kurt? I'm okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's how That's we're, our intro, yeah. I guess. Going Ow. in with a bang. Yeah, literally. For a plop? A plop. Or, okay. Oh, wow. Sorry if I ruined any opening you had. No, that's better than anything I could have come up with. No, so somebody just commented on our photo, so I was trying to oh, see what it was. Nice. Hey, how are you? I'm, I'm good. <laughs> good. I'm a little it's sore. It's my birthday month, so I'm It very is your birthday excited. month. My birthday month is over. Yeah. Yeah, we're a... done celebrating you, Kurt. Now it's all about Krista. <laughs> uh, it is Krista's birthday month. Actually, the next time we record will be my actual birthday, so. Yeah. I expect gifts. I expect to be showered with gifts. You'll be showered. You 100% can have. 100% kidding. I'm going to go through the garbage can and see what <laughs> taste test foods we threw out. Oh my God. <laughs> Seaweed wraps. I'll give them to you. They're all yours. Pretty much be up to par for, you know, our usual taste yeah. tests. Yeah. Yep. Hmm, good times. Any housekeeping? We have shout outs. Well, we have a lot of strangers, right? Well, remember the last episode was only recorded like a week yeah. after the last one. So, so we, we didn't, didn't have, any. have any. So yeah. now we have quite a few. So we want to give shout-outs to our newest strangers, and those are Natalie Ritalik, Daniel Bennett, Jen Targ, who I've been messaging back and Me forth too. with. She uh, loves the Missing 411 stuff, so this episode will be right up her alley. She's super nice. She is super nice. Jessica Barron Yazdani, Sarah McKinnon, Stephanie Koch, Ushi van der Schladeshit, mm-hmm. which is German. I think she's in Frankfurt, Germany, if I, I remember Kurt correctly. I made include that one just because I wanted him to say her name. She didn't I think answer I did the okay. questions. I think I did okay. You Ushi did really van well. der yep. Freya Sue, Josh Sepich, ate up the podcast, which is Tom Napier's podcast. And we just let in Alyssa Tolson, who asked to come in and said she loves the Missing 411 episodes, even the one with the bad audio quality. So well, we thanks. know what she listens. So thank you so much, guys, for joining the strangers. So how many strangers do we have now? Total? Yeah. Like 200 and wasn't it like 229 something or something like, like that. that? Pretty sweet. Yeah. So I love that these people just randomly yeah. find us. What I love about the strangers, too, is so we've got like 350 followers on Instagram, which is small beans compared to most people. But I'm guessing maybe half of those people actually listen to the podcast. You know how Instagram is. People just follow you to get the follow back, which annoys me to no end. Bridget was just talking about this on her podcast, My Best Vintage Life. And I hate it when people follow me for the obvious follow back. And I will not follow you back unless you are posting things I want to look at every day. So don't expect a follow back. I'm not being a jerk. I'm just very selective about what I expose myself to, and I don't want to look at whatever you're selling yeah. if I'm not interested in well it. Said. So. <laughs> well said. I know we're getting popular because our podcast webpage had 6,000 comments, hundred <laughs> percent of which was spam. Penile implants and porn. Yeah. Well, the penile implants I asked for, so I might Aww. need some of that <laughs> info. <sighs> But that's why I love the strangers. What I was saying is we know they legitimately listen to the yeah. podcast. So yes. that's exciting yeah. to me. Yep. So we love you guys. Yeah. So thank you guys for joining. Uh, housekeeping. We have a couple. Okay. I don't know if it's going to be an issue this episode, but we've been having audio glitches yeah, lately with our... Nobody mentioned except someone had issues with the YouTube. Yeah. But I listened to it yeah. on YouTube and But I'm wondering I didn't if she meant... Issues. I'm wondering because I would have to edit around the audio dropouts. Right. And it sometimes sounded a little weird because I had to edit out a section where our audio dropped I out. It so was I wonder really subtle though. 
well, you did a good job with the editing. Well, thanks, but it sucked when we were in the middle of like a really good thing, and then I had to edit the whole thing out because right. half of it was gone. Well, so, now we have a different laptop that we're yeah, using. So and... we're trying this, but if there's any audio glitches, that's why, because we're having issues. It's a small town podcast. It is a small so town. There's going to sm- be you know, flaws. We're not perfect. Yep. We think that's what makes us That's unique. why Krista's a small town girl living <laughs> in a lonely world. <laughs> I took the mid- midnight train going anywhere. anywhere. <laughs> so if there's any audio glitches, we are sorry. Yeah. Um, sorry, not Do sorry. you have any personal housekeeping? I don't think so. I wanted- oh, I do actually. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot this. I was reading something, an article on Yahoo, which I keep telling myself I'm going to stay away from Yahoo because they're terrible. Yeah. Like there's so many typos and things yeah. that are misspelled and... They'll present news as new when it's like from two years ago. But anyway, regardless, I was reading an article, I think that was taken from Vanity Fair, maybe, um, about Kristen Stewart. And I just wanted to read a little blurb about her and tell me what you think this sounds like. So, quote, the actress is often described as intense and passionate by the people she has worked with and is clearly sensitive and deeply affected by her surroundings. Later, she's asked about starring in the 2016 supernatural psychological thriller Personal Shopper, and she says she believes in ghosts. I talk to them, she says. If I'm in a weird small town making a movie and I'm in a strange apartment, I will literally be like, no, please, I cannot deal anyone else, but it cannot be me. Who knows what ghosts are, but there is an energy that I'm really sensitive to. She continues, not just with ghosts, but with people. People stain rooms all the time. Wow. She sounds like an empath. She totally sounds like an empath. So I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, me too. Energy. If I walk into a room of people and it's not a good energy, I'm going to be uncomfortable all night long. Exactly. Same same with me. That totally made me stop and think about, hmm, she's clearly an empath. Yep. So that's my only housekeeping. I thought it was interesting. That's interesting. I just wanted to bring up a couple more randonauting things. Yeah. I'm um, so you're still trying it. I'm still trying it okay. after my horrible... You're not giving up? I'm not giving up. You're going to persevere through this no. randonaut thing? Uh, I've done a couple successful ones. And okay. um, the first one I did... And for, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, randonauting is basically... You are given random, completely purely random quantum computer coordinates coordinates and you go to this spot that you would never otherwise have gone to that day and you know the people who don't think there's anything paranormal or philosophical about it think it's a neat way to just go on an adventure and go someplace you've never been but people who are paranormal or philosophical about it say that it's breaking you out of your predetermined routine and Mm -hmm. it's bringing you to something synchronistic that'll speak to you or something like that so I'm having a problem because all the ones put me in a farmer's field or in Lake uh. Michigan somewhere. <laughs> so you know I mean? one of the here. first ones I got where I could actually get to, um, for a little background on this one, we've talked about this, like, you know, I'm not real enthused with life right now. Like, I just feel like mm-hmm. my life isn't that great. And, you know, when I bring that up to friends that I feel like I'm just like not doing anything, I have had a lot of friends. Uh, my friend Carly, who listens to the podcast, hi Carly, hi Carly, says that I make. She sees my stuff and hears about what I do, and it makes her want to get out and do more things because she thinks that I'm actually like out doing really cool things. And my I friend so Miranda too. said the same thing that she's like, she thinks that I'm like 
that they said that they're actually jealous of the stuff that I do. Well, and I think that you have a really good social circle and you have really you. good friends Thank you. and you make a point to spend time with your friends. Yeah. There are a lot of people who don't have that. No. So I, that's just, and then I've had a lot of people tell me that they are, like are jealous of the stuff that I do. So it's like, I need to remember that. You have so, unique interests and the, you pursue them. Thank you. <laughs> so this one, this one randonaut coordinates took me down this dead end road that I've never been down. And I got to the end of the road and it, the actual coordinate point was in somebody's driveway where their car was. So I'm like, all right. And I'd happen to see the license plate on the car was I envy you. <gasps> Interesting. Yeah, and that was like you know that was maybe it was it could have been a coincidence. So you already easily. had that conversation before you yes. did this. So nah, maybe that was the universe's way of telling me I need to realize that things aren't as bad as I think right. they are, and that people do kind of get jealous of some of the stuff I do. So that was kind of interesting. I thought that it led me to that specific car that had right. the license plate that said "I envy you." Yeah. What kind of car was it? I don't remember. Like a Corvette or something. No, Some no. Middle-aged I don't bald remember. man owns it. <laughs> and then like after that, there was another one that brought me to a field and there was nothing there, but it was like a really pretty field that I had never been to. And it was like really like the sun, you know, the clouds, the sun. It was like, all right, I really like this. And yesterday I went out with intentions where I wanted, I said, show me something involving owls or books. And it, the first one took me at Lincoln Park in Manitowoc on the trail, it actually led me out on this trail that is in the woods, and it brought me to this tree, and there was nothing on it, but there was like a weird etching. Like, you could see something was etched on there. Did you take a picture? I did. I'll show you. Okay. And our listener, Anna, was like really interested in... Anna Banana? Not, not little Anna oh, Banana. Okay. This was older Anna. Okay. Uh, she oh, was Anna. Inter- yeah, 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 Anna, yeah. Anna Stania. And she was interested in doing it, so I sent her the picture, and she said she thinks the picture... Don't tell of, me. Don't tell me. Oh. <laughs> I want to see what I see before There's, you... Like, I don't know. You could see something was... It looks ca- like a bat. That's what she said. She <laughs> thought a bat or an owl with its wings. And I was like, all right, that's kind of... I see a bat or yeah. some kind of winged creature. Yeah. That's so I was like, that's interesting. So then I left Lincoln Park and I did another one that took me back into Lincoln Park and it took me to the zoo. And the it wasn't an owl, but the very spot that the coordinate led me to was the timber wolf cage oh, and it led cool. me and it was weird because the spot where it was was where the wolf was laying when i walked up that's weird yeah so i walked up and it came what are the over odds that it would i know be laying right i know there? and i walked up and it came it came over to the cage and looked at me and that mm-hmm. was it so it's like i don't know huh. what it means but it was really interesting like i really enjoy it it's just hard to get to some accessible areas yeah. here so i'm mm-hmm. gonna keep doing it i thought it was really cool and a lot of like the, the Reddit group, some of these stuff that these people post are just amazing. Like one guy said he wanted love. He said he wanted, you know, that his intention was show me something relating to love. Yeah. And he was out in this woods and there was nothing in this area. And finally he looked down and somebody's car keys were laying there and they had a heart keychain. Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of people that do this say what that. What do you do this, with the keys? He tried to find who they went. They were, but there was nothing. There was like no identifying anything on there. Huh. So he kept them. I mean, what else? You know. So a lot of people that do this say that this increases the amount of synchronicity in your life. So we're gonna see. Watch for that. Yep. We're gonna see what happens. Okay. So well, I'm I think glad that's, you. It's not a bust like the first no, time. No. No. I didn't bleed, so it was <laughs> yes, good. Yes. Very good. Um. So I think that's all we have for housekeeping. Okay. Cool. We're gonna have to get the show on the road because yeah, we're already. This behind. is what I was gonna tell you this morning that. I printed out the show notes last night and average a short to average ep- episode is an average of eight, nine pages of show notes. 
a lengthy episode is 13 pages of show notes. Okay. 24 pages. Oh my God. <laughs> so we're going to, I might skip some stuff. We might. Oh, no, I love 411. Even if we have to split this into two episodes. It's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of stories in this one. So those might read fast. So that's why we kind of get, need to get the show on the yeah, road. We could do a part one and part two. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I got a feeling it'll fly faster than I okay. expect it to. So should we move on to our taste test? Taste test. This is the one that you didn't trust me on, but I told the you. The one you that could... you said you were 95% sure it was going to be it's good. It's going to be good. And I said I, that I'm, 5% is It's good because me. this is something I've always wanted to try because okay. I've seen it. It's kind of a regional thing. So I was surprised I found it here. So, it's oh, like... we got to open our thing from Rhonda too. We oh, gotta... yeah, yeah, yeah. Which... Should, should we do that what first? Do you do? Yeah, let's do that. Rhonda, our, who has been on the podcast, our Rhonda Roo. Uh, got us something to put up in the studio, and I'll, of course, let Krista open oh, it. Oh, good. You'll let me struggle with it. It's in a cute, gifty-type bag. Okay, it's got... Hold on. What's that? Hold on. There's two things in here. Oh, that's my little... She got me a little squishy peep. A peep? A peep. Ah, like not edible? No, it's just like a little stress peep because oh, a stress they get peep. me peep stuff all the time because they know that I loathe peeps. Oh, I do too. I cannot They're stand disgusting. peeps. They're just sugary. There's and, something wrong with uh, you if you like those. So because I despise them, everybody gets me peep things. Oh, well, that's very nice of them. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't want to hurt whatever this is. I'm curious what this oh, is. Oh, there we go. I can just pull it out maybe? Yep. That's what she said. I'm just going to break the styrofoam. Ooh, oh, I'm excited. This is worse than like a bag of potato chips. It's weird you said that. Ooh, are we tasting potato chips? We are tasting chips? potato chips. Exciting. All right. Oh, look at it. That is really That's cool. Awesome. It so is. It's an Area 51 warning restricted area use of deadly fourth force authorized. It's like an exact replica of the Area 51 warning That's signs. That's so cool. Thank you so much, yeah, Rhonda. Thank you, that Rhonda. is awesome. That is awesome. If I can actually get it out of here. Get a picture of that. We'll have to figure out where we're going to hang this. Yeah. Ugh. Be fun to hang it on the door outside the studio. I want to be able to look at it while we're recording. That's true. Though. Thank you so much, yeah, Rhonda. Thank you, Rhonda. This is so sweet. Oh, should I take it out of the... Well, I just ripped it, so it's coming out of there. Oh, take my a God. picture. Put a, get a picture. Okay. I want to get the plastic off. This is so cool. It's even got like little... I know. Little screw holes. It's so cute. Thank you, Rhonda. Only I would call an Area 51 sign cute. <laughs> it's adorable. Thank you, Rhonda. That's awesome. That is so cool. I love it. She knows us. And the taste test. Chips. Apparently, it's a bag of chips. <laughs> Kurt lost it already. <laughs> I got it. They are Utz brand. I think it's Utz. Utz? Or Utes. I think Utz. Utes? I'd have to see it. It is. You ready for it? I'm ready. The crab chip, potato Ooh, chips oh with boy. Chesapeake Bay crab seasoning. And I don't think it's crab. Giving Kurt the stink eye I don't right think now. it's crab flavored. I think what it is is that Old Bay seasoning. I love Old Bay seasoning. I, I don't know. I've, I'm sure I've had it on stuff, but oh. I don't know what Old Bay seasoning tastes like. It's but amazing. I've, I know that they have Old Bay seasoning flavored sunflower seeds and stuff like mm. that. So I'm, I'm guessing that this is just Old so. Bay seasoned chips. I don't think it's going to taste like crabs. Well, I think but even if it Chesapeake does, crab, it, crab is good. It's a potato chip. It's not going to be horrible. I'm trying to sell you on this. I don't think it's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not succeeding because she's giving me the squinty eyed. It's the hungry size. <laughs> it is the hungry size. So okay, let me take a picture of the bag. It's Chesapeake Bay crab seasoning, so I don't know if it's Old Bay seasoning. That's different. But I think it's like they can't say Old Bay seasoning, so I think oh. they say Chesapeake Bay seasoning. Unless that's a style. Should I open the bag? But I've seen these like online and stuff. So I know it's like, I think it's like a main, 
East Coast kind of thing. Hmm. All right. They're going to be good. I'm, I'm guaranteeing you. Oh, they smell good. See? They're huge. That's what she said. All right. I'm going to grab like three chips. Wow, look how big they I'm excited are. because I've always wanted to try these. They're breaking my diet a little bit. I've lost 14 pounds. Oh, good for you, Kurt. Thank you. They are big. Usually you get a bag of potato chips and it's and like all, all broken and you ready? You ready? Do it. Mm. I'm waiting for the aftertaste to kick in because that's what usually bites us. It's like no, they're good. It's like dill. Is it? Mm. Is it dill? I'm tasting. I taste. It tastes like Old Bay seasoning. Actually, is that what Ooh, Old Bay seasoning? Spicy. Were you prepared for spicy? I wasn't prepared, but I don't <laughs> think it's that spicy. I think they're really good. Mm. I didn't think they were going to taste like crab. I thought they were going to no. taste like old, whatever Old Bay spices taste. Which like. is what this tastes like, totally. I mm. like it. They're really good. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's really subtle. It's not a real... No. They're really good. I hate it when potato chips are over-seasoned, and these are kind of perfect. It's got a little tongue burn, though. It does have a little burny tongue feel. Mm. I like them. I do, too. What are you going to give them? I'm going to give them... Okay, they're, they're spice. <laughs> it did kick in a little bit there. I'm going to give them, like, an eight. I'm going to give them an eight, too. Mm. I kind of expected a little more seasoning. They're pretty strong, though. Uh-huh. This would be good with a Sammy. Mm-hmm. They're good. They really are mm-hmm. good. I'm glad I tried them, though. Mm-hmm. All right. I doubted you, but they're good. All right. I told you they were going to be good. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the 5% of me was like, well, maybe they do taste like <laughs> nasty crab. crab. Mm. Yummy. I recommend them. Mm-hmm. They'd be really good with, like, a po' boy. They'd pair well with seafood for sure. Oh, I got some all over my shirt. <laughs> mm, yummy. Okay, I like Not them. like offensively spicy though. No, but my but tongue a feels burn. it. Yeah. There's a burn. Feeling the burn. But not bad. We are at 19 minutes and 57 seconds. We got this dialed in. <laughs> <laughs> Our titillating 20. Or not. I really like those. Yeah, they're delicious. Cool. Exciting. All right. I am so excited for this topic. They're our most popular episodes, and they're my favorite. I was trying to think of a completely different topic to say that we were doing just to confuse (laughs) you, but as we said earlier, tonight's topic is, I didn't know what to call it, so I just called it Missing 411 Revisited Yet Again. Perfect. (laughs) I don't know what else to call it. It's very literal. You guys asked for it. You guys love the Missing 411 stuff, as do Krista and I. Yeah, it's like my favorite. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I love missing persons cases, period. But when you add the a mystery the of like what's going on, circumstances, yep, takes it to a whole new level. Yep. Uh, when do you want to talk? Krista and I both watched uh, the new missing four one one hunted. Yeah. And I I didn't see the first one, but I, didn't I heard either. a lot of people say the first one wasn't as good as they expected. I'd like to know why. I'd like to know why too. If you guys saw the first missing four one one documentary and didn't like it, let us know why. And yeah. I, I heard a lot of good things. I know Bridget said it was really good. A couple people said. The first said, one? Yeah. Okay. No, no, the second the one. The second one. So the I haunted. knew it was going to be good going in. Mm-hmm. So I bought it on Amazon Prime, I think, and watched it. And it was really, really well done. I thought so, too. 
I thought it was well organized. Yes. I liked, my husband watched it with me last night, and he said he really liked how they had everything mapped out so you could see proximity and yeah, understand. Yeah, where they were, where this was found, where people, this was found. Yes, like how they moved or traveled or, you know, I thought it was really interesting. And of course, my favorite part was when they did the Sierra Sounds slash Samurai Chatter. I, we got to meet the guy who recorded that. Yeah, because we played that in our Bigfoot we episode. Did. And I didn't know the story really behind it. And now that I saw that in there and saw the whole story behind yeah. it, that the audio creeps me out. It is that, so creepy. That is the audio that... To see where they were when they heard that like they were is inside that, very that, unsettling. The, the little hut made out yes. of, out of uh, stumps and logs. But yeah, that was a lot of people really liked the last segment the best, the one with the lady in the tree stand. We're going to talk about that in our stories. Okay. Because I re- I got uh, what's his name Bruce Maccabee? Was that the the <laughs> scientist? Oh, the Flavin guy, as I call him, just like this guy's Flavin really guy. tedious. <laughs> Her husband? Yeah, because yeah, okay. on his website, he used to have, he wrote like the whole story about it, but his website is gone. Okay. But using the Internet Wayback Machine archive, I got it. So, um, yeah, my favorite, I mean, of course, the, the Sierra Sounds part was awesome, yeah. but the, out of the stories, my favorite was that Aaron. Aaron. Yeah. I yeah. can't think of what the his one last that was name walking was. around that lake and then ended up going straight. Complete opposite of, direction yeah. that he was supposed to. They, if if you guys haven't seen it, it's worth. I rented. We don't it, want to so give I, a bunch I of had, stuff away. But. I had two days. I think I could watch it because I rented mm-hmm. it. It was three dollars and ninety nine cents. It's totally worth. Mine was more than that, and I have Amazon Prime. You might have bought it. No, to buy it was ten something. Really? Yeah. It was three ninety nine for me too. It was like four ninety nine for me. Hm. Maybe it was on sale when I got it. <laughs> <laughs> So it's totally worth it. I mean, if you're even remotely into the missing 411 stuff, it's definitely worth watching. That's yeah. missing 411. The so hunted. we're covering one of the cases that was in that? Yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about the last one with the okay. lady in the tree stand. Interesting. So if you guys don't know, missing 411, uh, an ex-police officer named David Politis, or Politis, they hear all sorts of different pronunciations. I, he I think, pronounced it Politis. Though, yeah, I, I think thought. it's Politis, but I hear so many different pronunciations. David Politis was researching missing people in state parks, national parks, and realized that the park department wasn't helping, that they weren't going to give him a list of people that were missing. And he realized that there's a lot more people that go disappearing in mysterious ways from national parks, state parks, than anybody had any idea. Right. So he started writing a series of books called Missing 411 and mapping out the clusters of where these people go disappearing. And I think he's up to like seven or eight books now. He's, he's got a lot of books. He said he's investigated over 1,200 cases yeah. or something like that. It was originally there are called... some in Wisconsin, which yeah. is very intriguing. Yeah, so we're going to have to look into that. I did not know that. We're going to have to look into that. Uh, I think it was called Missing 411 because it originally was only like 411 people. Oh, really? Yeah, and then it branched out from there. Interesting. So that's why I it thought was it was named like that. info because isn't 411? So yeah, like, oh, okay. like I, that's what I thought it was too, but no, it was originally 411 people. Which is a lot, N- Now actually. it's up to thousands. Yeah. So it's very interesting stuff. If you've never heard about it, you should go back and listen to our previous podcasts because we go a little more into depth. Mm-hmm. I think tonight's going to be a lot of stories and theories. Good. I'm excited. So, Which is interesting because he normally doesn't go down the theory route. No. So that documentary was no. kind of surprising yeah. to me because there were a couple of yeah. theories hinted at. Yep. Sort of. He didn't really call them theories, but no. why were they in there if they weren't? Exactly. So I was... We'll get into that, that when we get a little more in. Okay. But... 
there's a list of commonalities that a lot of these people who go missing, you know, there's a lot of common factors that show up yeah. in a majority of these cases. So here are some of the missing 411 commonalities. A large percentage of these people disappear from national parks, near bodies of water, or near boulder fields, and specifically granite. Yosemite National Park is the largest of all clusters and also happens to be the biggest source of granite on Earth. Mm. I didn't know it was the biggest source of granite on Earth. I probably should have fact-checked that because I just (laughs) copied that from a website. Did you just make that up? No, I'm just making (laughs) stuff up now. If the missing individual is found deceased, the cause of death is almost never determined, often seeming as though they died without a cause at all. Medical examiners usually write it off that they died from exposure if they do not have a better answer to give. Right. If the missing individual is found alive, they usually have memory loss about the entire event. Children sometimes tell weird stories about how they went missing. There was one where a toddler went missing on a cold night and somehow survived, claiming that a wolf fed her berries from the palm of its hand, and that's how she survived. We talked about that, I believe, in our first episode about Mm -hmm. it. In a lot of the missing 411 cases, when the person is found, they are often missing articles of clothing, usually shoes, socks, or jackets. Shoes is really common. Paradoxical undressing due to hypothermia is possible, but in a lot of these cases, the weather doesn't get anywhere near cold enough for that to be an issue. And Although there are weather events. Yeah. And in a lot of these events where the people are missing their shoes, they would not have been able to travel far enough in order to get hypothermia in the first place or to get to that distance without their shoes. Right. Sometimes the children have their clothes on backwards or inside out, and their parents claim that the children can't even dress themselves yet. Oh, that's creepy. Why would that be? I don't know. People from both ends of the intellectual spectrum go missing. Uh, People who have intellectual divergences or disabilities go missing, as well as individuals who work careers as scientists, researchers, etc. So, I mean, there's no, you know, there's... It doesn't discriminate. No, there's super smart people and super not so smart people. A lot of older people. A lot of older people, a lot of younger people. People from both ends of the physical spectrum go missing. People who are physically disabled and cannot walk long distances, as well as individuals who are long-distance runners, lead active lives, and are very fit. According to Politis, most people go missing during the mid to late afternoon hours, specifically 2 o'clock p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Which is odd. Yeah. Because sunlight is really strong at that yeah. time. Yeah. The forest I mean, you think isn't nearly be as disorienting. Or evening right. where people go disappearing. Dusk is like a really confusing yeah. time in the woods, I think. Uh, there's also something called point of separation where people who disappear are often split off from other people. The missing are found in areas that seem difficult, if not impossible, to reach by foot or in the time that has lapsed, such as a child being found 12 miles away in just a matter of a few hours. A common example is children as young as two or three going missing and being found in high elevations such as mountains 2,000 feet in the air. It's just crazy. The missing are found in an area that's usually been searched by search and rescue teams numerous times over a period of days. Sometimes they're even found on the trail that's used to access the area they're searching, almost as if they're placed there intentionally in order to be found by search and rescue. Search and rescue teams are like super meticulous about their searches. Yeah, when they it, went it, over yeah, that like, in the it surprised me that they wow. in the documentary where they showed how they do this one section with the twine, and then they tape they twine it off and do another section. It was like I never knew. And they then they did go it. the opposite direction. Yeah, in so the that means they have a area? checkerboard pattern and check those areas. I never realized it was that meticulous. Thorough. Yeah. yeah, and then to find out that 
sometimes people are found in an area that's been searched repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. and also the body turns up there. And yeah, the person could be wandering around. In a really obvious spot, yep. too. Yep. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. No. Search and rescue dogs will often be unable to pick up a scent, or if they do, they'll follow the scent a few feet and then begin acting strangely, circling and sitting down. This is not common behavior for search and rescue dogs. Shortly after the individual goes missing, the forecast often takes a drastic turn. Torrential rain, lightning, fog, sandstorms, or blizzards occur, which delay the search parties. And that shows up a lot. I mean, that's kind of... I, I get that the weather can change at the, you know... Right. The flip of a coin. Right. But That could also explain why dogs lose the scent, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of them involve berry picking. Strangely, there's a recurring theme among several cases where those who are picking berries seem to go missing at higher rates. Hmm. Maybe they shouldn't eat those berries. Probably not. Uh, being last in line. One of the more recurring of all traits are that those are in a group who happen to be the last in line disappear. Others who were with the missing person report seeing them mere seconds before they suddenly vanish without a trace. No one ever reports hearing any sound such as a gasp, scream, or an animal. That they turn around and the person's just gone. Which is just These bizarre. stories just made me never want to go into the woods ever. I know. I know. <laughs> Prior this is a, this was a new one for me that came up in a lot of the recent uh, podcast interviews that I've listened to with him is that prior to the disappearance Friends and family often state that the victim has informed them that they were not feeling well or they were unusually tired. Really? Yeah. I've never that, heard that. That showed up in a lot of stuff that I've seen lately is that the person says, for some reason, they just don't feel good. Hmm. And Which then makes them a little bit more vulnerable. Yeah. Hmm. An unusually large number are found lying face down, almost as if they were dead before they hit the ground, which is kind of strange because, you know, uh, David Politis said on there that you would think that if you were starving or whatever you would drop and then you would like maybe roll on your back and right. not just plant yourself face first in the ground right so that's bizarre and that he said bizarre. sometimes it's almost like they were dropped face down but they can't find any injuries no nope uh there's something called the silence one of the stranger things is that these sometimes when people are in the woods they realize that everything is completely silent uh, here's, a, here's a little passage from somebody that was that this happened to. He said, One of the stranger things that has happened to me and another researcher was that we were deep in the woods when we both looked at each other and realized everything around us was silent. I'm talking zero sound. We could look up and see the wind moving the trees, but there was no wind sound, no squirrels, nothing. We each sat down on opposite sides of a large tree and waited for conditions to change. The man I was with was 70 years old, salt of the earth, Stated that in his 50 plus years of being in the woods, he's never seen anything like that before. Very uh, weird. That would be terrifying. Yeah. And that comes up a lot in these cases where the people live. They say that all of a sudden everything goes completely silent. That's usually not a good sign because no. animals know when there's a predator. Yeah. And they and go that silent. We, that we brought that up in other cases too. Like there was the one with the mirrored men where the person was in their tree stand and they saw the, like, yeah. the, like the three like men in black looking guys or whatever walking through the woods, like all mirror images of each other and, mm -hmm. and everything went quiet during that. It suggests, you know, influence over yeah. the atmosphere and yep. it's just really creepy to think about. Yeah. And another common thing is that they don't get information on these people they're looking for. I mean, the, the park department is really tight-lipped about weird it. about it. 
Uh, it's one of the things I read said, Dave, his crew and many other people looking for information on these missing people have contacted the National Park Service requesting information via Freedom of Information Act, which the Park Service legally has to provide, as these are merely missing persons cases and not legal criminal cases. So the police don't really have a means to stop this. However, the Parks Department starts to act suspicious and won't give any information out, claiming that they, quote, don't keep lists of missing persons or that they somehow lost the information, leading to speculation that there's some weird cover-ups going on within the higher-ups at the Park Service. Why? I don't know. I mean, I understand that if, if you're depending on tourism... Sure. For money, you're not going to be like, oh, all these people went mysteriously disappearing in Visit our park. Visit our park. You yeah. might not come back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's their new slogan. So I can understand why they would not want to publicize that. I guess. But yeah, I guess. But that's really shady if it's you really know shady. something is happening to people and you hush it up. Hmm. You know, so I don't know. I agree. So now we're going to do a couple stories. Okay. Missing 411 stories. On October 16th, 2006... 38-year-old Corey Kelly and his friend Jim Neprud went grouse hunting at the Red Lake State Wildlife Management Area in northern Minnesota. Corey Kelly had been coming to the same area ever since he was a child and knew the area very well, but it was Jim Neprud's first time. The men met up there in the mid-afternoon of the 16th and then started to set up camp when they realized that they had forgotten to buy gasoline. Hmm. Neprud said that he would run to the nearby town to buy some, and Kelly said that he would work some more on the camp and then might head out to see if he could spot any grouse. Neprud left his dog at the campground with Corey Kelly and left the campground around 5.30 p.m. and got back around 7 o'clock p.m. Kelly was not in the camp when he returned, and his shotgun was gone, as was Neprud's dog, so Neprud figured that he went out to see if he could spot any grouse. As it got later and later and Kelly hadn't come back, Neprud began to worry. He would periodically turn the car on and honk the horn several times. The next morning, Kelly still hadn't returned. Neprud headed out to look for him, but could not find any trace of him near the camp. So the dog was missing too? Yep, the dog, the shotgun, and Corey Kelly. Was the dog ever found? We'll guess that. Okay. <laughs> you always are you so know me. <laughs> I know, I know. I After getting it. the authorities, searchers came out and searched the area of the campground and the surrounding area with ATVs. Nine days later, on Wednesday, October 25th, two hunters nine miles away from the campground found Neprud's dog wandering the woods, alive but dehydrated and hungry. Okay, good. On Saturday, October 28th, searchers found Corey Kelly's cigarettes and lighter, and then on the following day, Sunday, October 29th, trackers found Corey Kelly's overalls, socks, and sweatshirt laying on the ground 14 miles from their original campsite. The best tracking dogs in Minnesota were brought in, but they didn't find anything. As snow started to fall into November, the search was called off for the winter. And that's got to be so hard Ugh. on a family How member. How would you when, ever stop looking? Yeah, that's got to be so hard when they're like, look, looking. we can't search anymore. You know, I would keep searching. Yeah, I mean, I would personally keep searching too. What really astounds me is the distances. Nine yeah. miles yep. is not a short yep. distance to walk yep. on a regular road or a path, but yep. through the woods, yeah. that would take you hours. Yep. On April 28th, the searches started up again. That day, the sheriff's department was flying over the area when they spotted what looked like a body among eight to nine foot tall reeds 15 feet off of a trail. The body turned out to be that of Corey Kelly. The official cause of death was listed as hypothermia. So how far was he from the cabin at that point? Because uh, I know they found his clothes 14 miles out. I'm not sure. That might show, that might show up later. In okay. The, 
By most accounts, this sounds like a standard case of a hunter getting lost in the woods, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Corey had been coming to this area since he was a child, and he was very familiar with the area. He was also an experienced hunter and knew what he was doing. He knew not to hunt at night because of the dangers of the area, including the swamps and bogs. And if he had somehow gotten lost at night, he knew enough to build a shelter, start a fire, or huddle with the dog to stay warm, and to fire his shotgun in a pattern to alert anyone nearby where he was and that he needed help, and that in the morning he would have a better chance of getting his bearings. I learned on that documentary, it's three shots. It is three shots. It's the universal signal for I'm lost and I need help. Or I need help, whatever. There's also the strange fact that the sheriff's department may have, for some reason, believed that Corey Kelly ended up in his final resting spot among the tall reeds 14 miles away on the very same night he left the camp. So it's got to be near where his clothes were found. Okay. That's really far away. Yeah. In an interview, Jan Kelly, Corey's mother, said, quote, they, meaning the sheriff's department, can't believe that he got 14 miles away from the campsite. He probably got there the first night. He must have been flying through the trees and the bushes. I can't believe he would have gotten that far, end quote. The sheriff's department never explained this belief or statement that they think he might have got there that first night. That makes no sense. No, that makes absolutely no sense. There's also the fact that Kelly removed some of his clothing. There's the condition of paradoxical undressing that happens in cases of extreme hypothermia, but Kelly had warm clothing with him, and the lighter that was found laying on the ground was near the discarded clothing, so he probably had the lighter with him to start a fire around the same time he discarded the clothing. And if he somehow had made it to the reeds on the first night, hypothermia wouldn't have set in fast enough for him to take off his clothing due to paradoxical undressing. Also, why would he leave the well-maintained trail to head 15 feet into 8 or 9 foot tall reeds? Where was the shotgun he had taken with him when he left camp? It has never been found. If he got lost immediately that first night, he should have still been close enough to camp that Neprude would have heard it being fired as a signal. And possibly strangest of all, Kelly had his cell phone with him. Reception is kind of spotty up there, but there were no traces of any kind of calls attempted or messages attempted to be sent out from his phone, and no pings of his phone on any of the cell phone towers in the area. His battery wasn't dead? No. In the 14 miles he traveled, he would have definitely come across areas where he had a signal. So when he left camp, he had warm clothing, a coat, a dog, a shotgun, ammo, a cell phone, cigarettes, and a lighter with him. He had knowledge of the area, years of hunting expertise, and most likely even rudimentary survival knowledge. So what happened? So what kind of dog was it? I don't remember. I can't I can't say like confidently that any dog could lead you back home, but if you it's a dog you take hunting with yeah, you. Yeah, the dog is going to stay with you. And I mean if you Well, get... and I feel pretty confident that if I were in the woods with Lucy and if I said specifically find daddy, yeah. that's what yeah. we call Jim. Yeah. <laughs> find daddy, she would be like, "Okay, yeah. let's go find yeah. daddy." And she would lead me back home. And like I feel I, pretty confident in I can't that. remember if it pops up in another story later or if it's one that I just read in another story, but a lot of them say that the dog will stay with the person. And they said in a lot of these cases, it's almost like the person was taken, was mm-hmm. gone, and the dog didn't have anybody there, so the dog headed off. Right. Which is scary to even think about that the, a, a person is gone you know well and this reminds me of of course the lisan um was it Froom? yep that their dog yep. came back yeah yeah and they I think said that's that, commonly we what said happens. that in the story too that they said that the only reason that would happen is, is if 
the dog was physically unable to be with the girls. Like right. they were being held the somewhere. The dog also didn't really know the girls though. No. So I could understand why this dog yeah. would stay out there yeah. hoping for his owner to come back yeah. or maybe he yeah. was looking for him. Yep. Yep. I think if it was a dog that wasn't really attached to you, its instinct would be to go home. Yeah. So I don't know. This one is just a weird one. All these missing four in one stories are like this. Like I stuff. Don't understand why they take sense. their clothes off. I don't either. It just doesn't make. It's no. not like he was out there for a week with food and water. I mean, I get paradoxical water. undressing. I understand that, but sure. it just doesn't. Like some of the times, it doesn't make sense. Right. I think drugs can make you do that. Yeah. Um, but unless this guy was on meth, I don't know how don't, he got 14 miles know. away. I don't know. And I don't know why the police suspect it happened the first night. I don't know. Now we got a, sh- well, we got a and, couple. And the, another really common thing is that for hunters, their weapon is never found. Yeah. That shows up a lot and it comes up a lot. I don't remember. I think they said it in the documentary, but for some reason, bow hunters disappear really? a lot more than gun mm-hmm. hunters. They said it's almost like something is specifically targeting targeting bow hunters. Hmm. And they said it's a it's a heavy thing to carry. So if you were lost and getting really fatigued, you can use it for so you, many. You can use it for to lean on. You can use it to, but you're not going to drop your. That's what people said though. They would assume that if you're really tired and you need to start unloading things because you can't carry stuff anymore, why would you know a bow is really heavy? Yeah, that you oh, would I get you're rid of a gun. it. Like you're not going to get rid of your gun. I don't think you're going to get rid of your gun if you're in lost in the woods. Probably not. Not a no, handgun. No. I, I do see how if something were too heavy, though, you'd have to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it would make sense that it, a weapon would be found. But he didn't have a whole lot of other things with him that were heavy. That's why I can't right. imagine why he would get rid of the shotgun or why it's never been found. Right. You know, so I don't know. Why would he? I just don't know. Now we got a couple short ones. Okay. Next story. 30-year-old George Panka seemingly vanished into thin air on June 20th, 2011, when after tiring, he fell behind his church group as they were descending the Upper Yosemite Falls Trail. The three-and-a-half-mile-long trail winds its way 2,500 feet up an almost vertical cliff, ending at the tallest waterfall in North America. It may very well be Yosemite's biggest tourist attraction. It is heavily trafficked, and it is in view of Yosemite Village. Outside of plunging to one's death on the rocks below, there is no way off of it. A dozen helicopters, 74 ground teams, and six search dogs failed to produce his body or any signs of him. Hmm. Like he was just, there's, there, it's almost impossible for him to just vanish off that trail. He couldn't have fallen off though? No, because they would have found him. They would, somebody yeah. would have seen him because that's all that's there. Hmm. You know, so he's just gone. He, he fell behind. He was tired. He was complaining about being tired. Which he fell common. behind. No, and he fell behind. He was last in line, mm-hmm. and he vanished. He Just doomed. gone. They can't find anybody. No trace of him. That makes no sense. Another story. On December 5th, 1961, 16-year-old James McCormick was hunting bobcats with his dad and their dog near Multoma Falls, Oregon, on the Columbia River. The first day they went hunting, the weather quickly changed and turned bad, first turning cold and then into a rainstorm and then into a snowstorm. They quickly lost their way and had to spend the night on the mountain huddling together to stay warm. In the morning, James was cold and exhausted and not feeling well, and his father actually physically carried him as they looked for help or a way out. James' father at one point saw a light, and he thought it was possibly a headlight in the woods, so he set his son down and went to see if he could flag them down, telling his son to stay put and he'd be right back. The dad left for a few minutes, 
realizing that there was nothing anywhere near where he saw the light. No roads, no paths, nothing. It was just dense woods. He went back to where he had left his son, and the son was gone. He searched around for an hour and couldn't find any trace of him. The father made his way down the hill and found a lodge and told them what happened. Soon, 200 searchers, including off-duty policemen, helicopters, and search dogs, converged on the mountain. They headed back to the last place James was seen, and they soon found the boy's shoes and socks. Continuing with the search, they soon found the boy's glasses. Later in the day, the search team found the boy's dead body around 300 yards away from where his father had left him at the foot of a small cliff. Some articles said that the boy died from the fall, while others said that he died from exposure. There never was a concrete answer. So he fell? They don't know. They don't know. Like, why would he have, feet away, though? Why would he have climbed that cliff right. to fall off the cliff? That doesn't make sense. His dad told him to stay put, said, I'm going to be right back. How old was he? 16. Hmm. Why did, you know, the shoes and socks, possibly hypothermia. Yeah. But why did he not stay put? Uh, Some people. Because he's 16. Some people theorize (laughs) that whatever is causing this lured the dad away with a light in the woods to get him away from the sun. Could be. Because the dad was sure that it was headlights and there was nothing there. There could not have been a light. So... So I don't know. He must just wandered day. off on his own. No, I'm saying the dad oh, every I know. day that's must just be, regret that's, leaving him. That just breaks my heart thinking of mm. how. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. You yeah. would run over that yep. constantly every day. Yeah. So I don't know. Another story. On Saturday, September 22nd, 2012, 53-year-old Linda Ortega and her 56-year-old brother, Eddie Huff, walked into the woods surrounding the tiny town of St. Joe in the Arkansas Ozarks. Huff was going to teach his sister backwoods survival techniques. Huff walked out of the woods on Monday and told their niece, Shelly Friend, that he had seen Ortega safe on the porch of a relative's house. It wasn't until Wednesday that Friend and Huff realized Ortega was still lost in the woods. Hmm. Like, I don't get why he said he saw her on somebody's porch and then realized that she was still, that she was left in the woods. I don't know. It's like um, a doppelganger kind of situation. On Thursday morning, about 75 volunteers on foot, horseback, and all-terrain vehicles started searching the area for Ortega. They found her the same day. Ortega was unable to explain how she and her brother had become separated on Monday, saying, quote, I thought he was hurt or something, so what I did, I tried to find help for him, but I didn't know there was nothing wrong with him. According to Ortega, she... a weird thing to say. I know. According to Ortega, she wasn't alone. She said, quote... I would see people. I'd ask for help, and they'd act as if they didn't even hear me. <gasps> I've heard this before. This was a, this was this. I don't think this was the same one that we talked about in another. I've heard like the circumstances yeah. though. But I don't. I, I, we talked about one similar to this. I think. Yeah, it was in like a. a bu- yeah, there were bushes involved. I don't think it's the same yeah. one. And then she said she described herself as being very scared and freaked out, saying, "Quote: These people were hiding in bushes. They were weird people. Very weird people." So, so you know, people theorize maybe she was eating berries to survive, but she wasn't gone that long that she would need to pick unknown berries and that maybe they thought she was hallucinating. But she said there were weird people out there with her in the bushes. Not the first time we've heard that. No, And there's there's a lot of stuff. And this involves like, you know, with the bushes, with the berry picking, there's been other stories that involve like people seeing people in bushes. And asking for help and And they act like you're not even there. Yep. So, I don't know. Is it weird that all these stories make me think of Blair Witch? <laughs> no, it's not weird. Okay. I don't think it's weird. Another story. November 10th, 1938, five-year-old Jerry Hayes was with his family in Rucker Canyon in the Chiricahua Mountains of Arizona. 
the family set up a hunting camp. Sometime during that day, they realized that Jerry was gone. They were in a box canyon surrounded by mountains, and it seemed like the only way he could have gotten out was at the one opening and exit, which the family was stationed at, that mm. they would have seen if he would have went out that way. Jerry was also very frail and had severe rheumatism and never wandered away from the family. Within days, there were hundreds of people searching for the boy. The military then came in with tons of searchers, and no trace of the boy was found. The sheriff said he had no idea what happened. On November 19th, some searchers far outside the search radius saw faint tracks going up a steep hillside of a mountain five miles from where the boy had disappeared from. The tracks were a 1,000 feet up a steep hillside, and that's where they found Jerry's body. His shoes, socks, and jacket were missing. The coroner said that Jerry died of exposure. Why climb a steep hill when you have rheumatism? Why get rid of your shoes and your jacket when the nights can get so cold? How do you get five miles away? I don't know. With uh, rheumatism. It was interesting that this was eight miles away from the Chiricahua National Monument, where three people have vanished from there and has, have never been found, including Paul Fugate, the only on-duty park ranger to ever disappear on the job and never be found. Mm. So that's kind of like a hot spot. Yeah. But they said that there is no way that he could have physically gotten out of that box canyon without... Anyone seeing Going it. through the entrance. Where they were all camped out. You know, so... I don't know. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Next story. On the 11th of June, 2014, Mike Herdman and Taylor Byers, two Arcadia, California firefighters slash EMTs, accompanied by Herdman's dog, Duke, another dog, Duke, set out on a planned four-day hiking trip through the Sespe Wilderness area of the Los Padres National Forest in Southern California. At the end of the third day, Friday the 13th, they made camp above the east bank of the Sespe River. Around 9.30 p.m., under a full moon, Duke bolted from camp, and Herdman, barefoot and dressed only in board shorts and a t-shirt, set out after his canine companion. I feel like they were doomed from the start. A full moon on Friday, Friday the, the 13th. 13th? Yeah. I would have checked that stuff first. Byers joined Herdman in search of the dog. After a mile through the rugged Sespe River bottom, Byers and Herdman agreed to go separate directions to cover more ground. When neither Herdman nor Duke returned to the camp, Byers began to search for either or both of them traveling up and down the Sespe Creek. He continued searching for them all day Saturday without success. The following day, Sunday, he continued his search and at some point realized he needed to get help. He left a backpack with supplies at the campsite in case they returned. In an attempt to make his way out of the unfamiliar territory, became disoriented and lost, but eventually, with the aid of two fishermen that frequent a nearby creek, found his vehicle. Search and rescue was brought in, and on Tuesday, they found Herdman's backpack and footprints. As the days went on, the searchers from the air and ground had several sightings of the dog, Duke, but were unable to catch him. On Monday, June 23rd, Ventura County Sheriff Jeff Dean announced that search and rescue efforts were curtailed to a handful of volunteers. Mm. He stated that almost 100 search and rescue workers had scoured more than 50 square miles with no sign of Herdman. Duke was then finally caught 14 miles from where he had been spotted on the previous occasions. Okay, good. Authorities said that he was dehydrated and exhausted. On Friday morning, June 27th, however, a deputy pilot who just dropped a crew off near the last place Herdman had been seen saw something, a color or shape that didn't seem to fit the landscape, and circled a few times until a crew was sent to confirm that it was indeed the badly decomposed body of Mike Herdman some 500 feet downslope the base of a cliff, partially hidden from view in tall grass. 
The body location was reported in various ways, but most consistently as three quarters of a mile from and 1,200 feet in elevation above the last place he was seen. So really... Yeah, where they searched. Was the last place he was seen near the campsite? Yeah. Okay. So they searched this area. not even that far away either. Officials stated that perhaps the area had not been searched closely as such searches focus on places someone trying to survive would go to, such as near water, shade, and shelter. And they focused on areas they thought Herdman could get to because they didn't think someone without his shoes would scale a 1,200-foot mountainside. Officials stated that why someone would go such a distance and make such a climb barefoot and barely dressed in the middle of a night was a question whose answer, quote, remained with Mike Herdman. July 1st, the medical examiner reported that Mike Herdman had died from blunt force trauma, probably falling from the cliff, Mm. and that ecstasy and alcohol were found in samples taken from muscle and liver tissue recovered from the decomposed body. And there's so many questions. Why would a trained emergency services professional act so irresponsibly and take off into the dark and bare feet on terrain that you know is going to be rough? I understand he was going after his dog. Right. But why would you keep going like that and not come back to camp and get your shoes? Like, I don't understand that part of it. Ecstasy doesn't make you act that way. No, no. Why would a trustworthy canine companion bolt like he did and give... And just take off out of the camp. And, you know, he's never done that before. What made him bolt from the camp like that? When the sheriff reported that the body had been found and recovered, he expressed some confusion at the body's placement on the mountainside, saying that it was far too far from the cliff face to entertain the notion that it had fallen and rolled to its final resting place. If a scavenger had dragged it, there was nothing in the autopsy or report about this. So how did the body get so far from the bottom of the cliff it was it sounds like it was quite a dit like if it fell off the cliff it would not have rolled into this brush pile i don't know it's it's funny because it it seems like the bodies that are found are way more mysterious and confusing than the ones that are never found yeah yep why are there so many conflicting stories from the start the story presented to the public was like mired in fog and discrepancies and didn't make a lot of sense. In one telling, Herdman went in search of Duke and Byers didn't join the hunt until neither Herdman or Duke returned to camp the following morning. But in another telling, Herdman and Byers went in search of Duke together and became separated when Herdman left the creek bed into some thick brush. And in another telling, Herdman and Byers went in search of Duke and agreed to separate and cover more ground. I don't know why there wasn't more questions asked of... I mean, Byers, this, the other guy. This could be foul play. Yeah, I mean, could he have killed him and I mean, then like he put the body there? I don't know. Usually, when someone changes their story a bunch of times, they have something to hide. I don't know because they can't keep track of the lies. Bloodhounds were utilized in the search beginning the second full day of search and rescue operations. They should have easily been able to track Herdman out of the creek bed with no problem, but they could not find a scent. Hmm. And he was in bare feet, so he should have. There should have been scent. I mean, there should have been. Right. You know, and they, the dogs couldn't find anything. Uh, somebody on Reddit, a user called Rogue Nation, says, quote, If you inch along the creek path on Google Earth, past the last place seen, there are no nice, pleasant options out of the river bottom for a long way. And if you bypass the first exit and second exit, you will be in for immediate transition to virtually no opportunities for an exit anywhere. Virtually every place he might have started climbing out would have presented an incline ratio of one unit forward to one unit upward. This is insanely hard work. It wouldn't matter if he was a marathoner, pentathlete, or Ironman. 
He had just spent a full day hiking through what is regularly described as very difficult terrain, then just traversed one or two miles barefoot at night through the Setsby Creek, and then had to work like a beast to ascend the mountain. For what reason? It makes no sense. Hmm. So I don't know. That one is a little weird. Part of me feels like there's something more to that one. Foul play. Yeah. And this is a story from Reddit, from a user, a Reddit user. They said, in early April of 1978, members of my extended family took a trip to the Sequoia National Forest near the confluence of the Kern River and Brush Creek Flats. Not sure where that is. Is it in California? I think so. The party consisted of my grandparents, parents, uncle, aunt, cousins, and my siblings. I was about eight years old when this happened. In any case, about noon, one afternoon, my aunt laid my cousin, age almost three, down in the tent for a nap. Our grandparents were in a trailer just above the tent, and the camping spot was hemmed in by the river and creek on the other sides. To reach the creek, you would take a small path over the side of a steep embankment, and the river was a very steep trail. It was a warm day. My cousins and siblings and I were eager to go back down to the creek, and the parents went down to watch us. To be fair, I don't know why my aunt thought it was okay to leave a toddler in a tent alone. But my grandparents but my grandparents were in line of sight and never left the camper area. They looked in on Katie around 1 o'clock, and she was still asleep. Around 2 o'clock, my aunt realized that Katie had been asleep for two hours and wanted to wake her up so she'd go to sleep at bedtime. So she went up the hill. Five minutes later, all hell broke loose. My aunt reached the tent to find Katie was gone from her sleeping bag in the tent. She assumed she was with her grandparents in the trailer and went to look in on her. My grandfather was sitting outside, and my aunt said, Hey, is Katie inside with Mom? My grandfather said, No, she's in the tent sleeping. Of course, this sent my aunt into a panic because Katie was not in the tent. Everyone started looking for Katie. I remember very specifically my uncle running to the toilets because he feared that Katie tried using them by herself and fell in. Oh, God. I know, which is horrible. Like a pit toilet? Yeah, that's exactly what they said, Uh. a pit toilet. My parents were scared Katie tried looking for us and toddled over to look down at the river and fell into the river. Either way, no one was anticipating a great outcome. Us kids were asked to walk up the creek to the easiest spot to go down and see if she was anywhere in the creek bed. She wasn't. After checking everywhere within walking distance, my cousin flagged down a passing trucker with a radio to call the authorities, and my uncle drove down to a little store to call the police. Meanwhile, everyone who was an adult, except for my grandmother, who was left with us in a trailer, fanned out to look. The logging trucker radioed up to their base crew and asked everyone to be on the lookout for a child. They were upriver and had trucks coming down almost every half hour. No one saw Katie. There was no sign that she had been anywhere. When she lay down to sleep, my aunt had left her in shorts and a tank top and white leather sandals with a buckle. By the time anyone arrived, it was 4 p.m. and warm, like 100 degrees warm. Mm. I can't remember the exact sequence of events of the afternoon, but at one point, the assumption was that Katie had likely gone down to the creek and fell and was pushed into the main current. Some fishermen had been cutting their way downstream and hadn't seen anything in the river. It was just like she disappeared. One thing everyone noted was that Katie was not the sort of kid to walk on the road by herself. She hated the noise that Jake Brakes made on logging trucks, and we were all pretty confident she would not have left camp. It just wasn't in her nature. We half expected to find her playing with her toys in the dirt somewhere under a tree. Around 9, a dog handler arrived, and they used the scent on her blanket to track her, but the scent just stopped dead down by the river. Oddly, the scent didn't follow a trail. It went through bushes and brambles and some rocky, hot terrain and just disappeared at the edge of the river above the inlet. That just about destroyed my aunt. So at this point, it was just the assumption that she was in the water. It was a complete feeling of hopelessness. They had decided to see about getting a search and rescue team, specifically one trained in swift water, but those just weren't a thing back then. It was decided that the crew they would get would start heading up the canyon over from another county. 
About five o'clock in the morning, a crew arrived and they started to formulate a game plan. Meanwhile, some forestry guys were walking the road looking for any sign and they found a sandal above where the dog indicated she had went in the river, about 20 feet above, just off the side of the road. Odd. That refocused the search. Maybe the dog tracked an earlier trail or maybe it had just been wrong, we thought. About a mile up river, there's a really, really tall bridge. A fisherman had taken a game trail down and wound up on the opposite side of the river and he saw a small white tank top in tatters. It was covered in those little wheat-looking bramble things and torn. It was so beat, I don't want to say that word, it was so beat to crap that he didn't even pick it up. But on his way back to his vehicle around 8 a.m., he was stopped by a game warden and questioned, as many people were. He told the warden he found a tank top and then went back down to retrieve it. The tank top proved to be Katie's. The same time, a hiker recalled hearing what he thought was giggling and a child's voice hours earlier in the dark near the bridge. All of these men had solid alibis for the night before. Just about the same time, the radio crackled, and to everyone's astonishment, Katie had been found five miles up the road across a very slippery creek just above a huge waterfall. She was totally nude. A car coming down from another campground saw her just standing there in a daze. She wasn't upset, just dazed. Not cold, not sunburned, not hurt in any way. Her feet and legs had a few tiny scratches, but the bottom of her feet were perfect. To this day, I have no earthly idea how she survived what she has supposedly survived. A toddler allegedly cut through brush, crossed a river, gained about 2,000 feet of elevation, and walked five miles in the blistering sun on rocks. She survived a night outside with no clothes on, no blisters on her feet from walking on hot granite. The easiest assumption that everyone was quick to make was that she'd been abducted, but by whom and how, and deposited where she was found. But why were her tank top and sandal found where they were, in the beat-up conditions that they were? It makes no sense. Where was the rest of her clothes? They wrote off her day's state as dehydration and exposure, but when they were asking her what happened, she didn't talk about being taken or held against her will. She only talked about following a, quote, bear man. What? None of it adds up to this day, and to this day, it's a family mystery. Bigfoot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a weird one. That is really like, weird. Like, why was there nothing? Why her her feet should have been blistered or dirty or something, but the feet were in perfect condition. That's weird. And why was she naked? Well, little kids take their clothes off all the time. Yeah. It's actually kind of normal. Yeah. But then she said she was following a bear man, which I don't know. And how did, if that's what happened, how did her, well, if they were in a trailer, though. If her grandparents were in a trailer, they might not have heard someone approach. No, but they were out, they were outside they were. when she disappeared, and they should have seen her disappear from the tent, which that makes no weird. sense. So I don't know. That one is just a weird story. Well, thank God she was found and okay, but it doesn't make sense. How would she get five miles? I don't know. Don't know. I think that would be a long distance yeah. for her to walk under yeah. perfect conditions. Yeah. So I don't know. And the last one in this group of stories is the one of Jan Maccabee, the wife of optical physicist Bruce Maccabee. This was the last story okay. that they had in the, the documentary, the documentary okay. which you should watch because it yeah. was really good. So this was actually taken. I had to use the Internet Archive and go back to 2016 in order to find this Web page because it's not there anymore. But this is Bruce Maccabee. And Bruce Maccabee is, always shows up in UFO documentaries. I've seen him on tons of like ancient aliens and stuff. Really? He's an optical physicist. Never yeah. seen him oh, before. I've seen him. He's on coast to coast a lot. Okay. So this is his wife and this is his account of what happened with his wife. Okay. Some of you probably know this already if you've seen the documentary. Bruce says, quote, it was Wednesday, September 29th, the next to last day in September and hunting season in Ohio was just four days old. The day started cool and damp and then became a beautiful warm day with a nice sunset. 
Jan was anxious to begin hunting. Her method of hunting consisted of waiting and watching while seated in a tree stand. The seat of her tree stand is at the top of a 15-foot ladder. Her seat is in the northwestern corner of a many-acre wood that is surrounded by large planted fields and low-density residential areas. Her seat faces the east and is surrounded on all sides by trees. She didn't hunt in the morning, but she did climb up the 15-foot tree to the seat to test the newly installed bow hanger. She took a picture of her bow hanging from the bow hanger. She took the picture and many other pictures with her BlackBerry Pearl Model 8130 camera phone. The phone records the date and time of each picture, the spatial resolution, and the total byte size of each picture file. She went to her tree stand at about 5.30 p.m. and sat. A squirrel was dropping nut pieces on her head, and animals, birds, and crickets were moving and making noise. To occupy her time, she was texting with her phone. At about 6.21 p.m., she decided to take a picture of herself in the tree stand. She was facing east with the sun at her back. She held the camera above her and to the left. The sun was behind her, low in the west, with the light filtering through the tree branches. She took the first photo with the camera a bit above her head and to her left so she could get a photo looking down past her to the ground. She then decided to take a second picture. She took the second photo and didn't like it, so she deleted it. Suddenly, the woods went quiet. Noises stopped. The silence was weird. It so surprised and unnerved her that she wrote a text message to her friend saying, quote, Something is wrong. The woods just went to a dead silence. No squirrels, no birds, no crickets. It's odd. She sent that at 6.23 p.m. She thought a coyote or maybe a black panther or some predator animal caused the quiet, as she knows, as hunters know, that when a predator such as a bear enters the area, the other animals tend to become quiet. She then became aware that a weird visual effect was moving rightward across her field of view at an apparent distance of maybe 15 to 20 feet. She described it as if looking through, quote, saran wrap. She compared this distortion of the scene of being somewhat like the effect of the invisible creature in the Predator movie. You remember that movie yeah, with the, totally. where it had like that weird... It was shimmery yeah, kind of. Yep. This distortion was at a higher altitude than her 15 feet above the ground, perhaps about 25 feet above the ground. She took her glasses off and rubbed her right eye, thinking at first she had a floater or a moat in her eye, but after rubbing it, it was still there. It moved to her right from about 15 degrees to the right of straight ahead till about 45 degrees to the right. Then it disappeared. Things looked normal, and she heard normal sounds start up again. As she recalls it, she held the camera in her right hand about a foot and a half from her face. She pointed the camera in the direction of the distortion and took a picture. As she recalls, the picture was taken immediately after the distortion appeared. The picture should show nearby trees, but that's not what the picture shows. After sitting for an hour and a half more, she left the tree stand around 7.45 p.m. and came to dinner with our guests for the evening. She didn't even think to mention her strange experience. After dinner cleanup and a movie, the guests were about to leave when I checked my Facebook messages and saw that one of Jan's nephews, a high school student, wrote something saying that there was a sighting by a number of students and faculty at the high school during band practice just before dark. The high school is about a mile northwest of the tree stand. He wrote, quote, We were playing tonight on the field, and just as it started to get dark, a huge bright light appeared over the field and began to move sideways. Then in a matter of about five seconds or so, it disappeared, getting smaller with every passing second. About five minutes later, it reappeared. This time it was amber in color. I know of four people who saw this, and according to an upperclassman, the same thing happened last year, and they actually stopped rehearsal. They didn't say that in the documentary. They, they talked about the light in the documentary. Yeah, but they didn't talk about how it happened, it happened the year yeah. before. 
I asked him what time this was, and he responded about 7.50 or 8 o'clock p.m., or about an hour and a half after Jan's phenomenon. Whether or not this high school sighting was connected with what Jan saw, the fact is that it had an immediate effect on her when I mentioned this to Jan and the other guests at the house. She suddenly realized that she hadn't told anyone of her experience. She then described in detail what she recalled seeing happen about the forest going silent and the, uh, the appearance of the moving distortion field. Later on, in further discussion, she recalled that she had actually texted a brief description of the forest going silent to her friend. She also recalled that her ending phrase, it's odd, was an oblique reference to the moving distortion, but she did not describe the distortion effect to her friend because she knew it would take a lot of text to fully explain what she had seen. Instead, she felt that she should stop texting and return her concentration to hunting. During a further discussion the following day, she recalled that she had taken the strange picture in the direction of the distortion after it seemed to have disappeared. And then they looked at the photo. They analyzed the photo. The sudden silence in the forest was strange, but nothing compared to the strangeness of the optical distortion that moved through the trees. Whatever that was, it appears to have left its imprint in the photo Jan took. And they showed the picture on in the missing 411 hunted. Yep. And he says, as can be seen, the distortion photo should show trees and foliage in the forest at distances from about 10 feet to about 50 feet and beyond. The tree images should be sharply focused as they are in the preceding and following photos of herself. There is just no way that the normal operation of the camera under normal optical conditions of the scene could result in the distorted picture. There are two other we're anomalies. We're going to discuss this photo, right? Yeah. There okay. are two other anomalies. First, all the other pictures that were taken were at a spatial resolution of 1,024 pixels by 768 pixels. Yet this single photo was taken at 528 by 400 pixels. Second, the other pictures had a bite size of over 200 kilobytes, whereas the size of this picture is only 43 kilobytes. Consider first the resolution. The camera has three settings for spatial resolution, 1600 by 1200, 1024 by 768, and 640 by 480. There is no 528 by 400 pixel resolution on the... I mean, that's weird that it took this photo at that size that doesn't even exist on the phone. That is strange. This is an abnormal spatial resolution. She didn't change the resolution or anything, so how did the camera get set to this unusual resolution? Uh, The distortion picture looks like a collection of reflections from a surface such as one might find in a photo of hair. That's not to suggest that Jan's hair was in front of the camera because it couldn't have been. Jan's hair was tied back in a ponytail and she wore a cap over it. There's no way her hair could have been in front of the camera. Examining the photos of actual hair, one can see a stranding effect that is kind of similar to what appears in the distortion photo, but there is very little of the rainbow or spectrum effects that does appear in the distortion photo. So, I don't know. Uh, He goes on to believe that there could have been like a magnetic, some kind of weird magnetic distortion that caused that photo, and he tried running a a magnet around the camera, and when there was a strong magnetic one, it wouldn't take a picture. Hmm. So... He says, in conclusion, there is no conclusion as yet. This is offered as a reasonably well-documented observation with the photo of a strange optical effect combined with some strange effect on the camera. So that was... Okay, so here's what I think. Perfectly logical explanation because we just took a photo of ourselves this morning that has what I would consider an almost identical effect in it. The sun. And it's the sun shining. Coming up from behind the building. Yes. Yeah. And so she took... I know you only have one of the photos, but there were several photos in the documentary, and she's kind of 
you, nobody can see this obviously, but she's looking over her shoulder and holding the phone up sort of back behind her. Yeah. And her hair, yeah, it's pulled back, but there's lots of strands that are loose and kind of, you know, her hair's not smoothed back with hairspray and there's not one strand that's astray. It's yeah. actually kind of... There's a lot of strands that are sticking yeah. out. Yep. And I think the photo clearly is a picture of her doing it over the shoulder, the but sun. she must have moved her head just enough that the sun yeah. popped over yeah. the top of her head, and it's clearly sunrise. They're very insistent that it's not her hair so, in the photo. And I, I don't know. Yeah. I honestly, I'll put the photo in the strangers group. I think it's uh, clearly her. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Compare it to the photo that we took today recording. I, I think it looks like her hair, but she is adamant that it is not her hair. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't she know how I can. She says she doesn't remember taking the photo as well. Yeah. yeah. So how can she say for certain that she wasn't taking another yeah. selfie at I don't that know. moment? I don't know. She says right in the documentary, I don't remember taking a photo. Yeah. So. I don't know. I don't put, I, I put, you know, I'm not saying her experience didn't happen. I just don't think there's anything strange about that photo whatsoever. Uh, what I think is interesting, and we'll get into this in a little bit in the theories, is the idea that of a cloaked something. Yeah. 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 So we'll get into that a little more. Uh, before we go into theories, I want to also bring up that now with, I mean, this is getting to like be a popular topic, this missing 411. So now As there are be. people that are building off of this and writing their own books. Oh. Uh, a man named Thomas Spriggs has written a book called Into Nowhere. I listened to a, a podcast that he was interviewed on. Are they like the same cases? It's missing 411 stuff, yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, they just can't call it the missing The podcast that I listened to him is a podcast called Where Did the Road Go, Ooh, which is a actually a really good podcast. Yeah, Barry yeah. listens to that. Yeah. So Doesn't he was, she? I think so. Am I thinking I of think the right so. one? Okay. I've actually come across that podcast a lot when I'm doing research. It's called Where Did the Road Go? It's a really good podcast. I could have sworn she recommended an episode But to they us. had Thomas Spriggs on there talking about his book, Into Nowhere. Okay. Spriggs says that not only are there cluster areas, but the disappearances and deaths follow a pattern. He started plotting these all out and said that 66.4% of these cases are linked into regions and that the clusters are hubs for the region. Okay. What's what the, what David Blytus says is the is the the cluster is actually the center of a hub of a bigger area according to Spriggs. Okay. He says that there are main hubs and outliers. Like outliers are cases that happen on the edges of sure. the region. Yep. Uh, he says it's almost like once the hubs get too noticed, there start to be outliers that show movement to a new region where it starts up again. And it starts with just a few incidents, like something is testing the waters about how the new area reacts to disappearances hmm. before becoming a new region, which which suggests that whatever is doing this has an intelligence sure. that it is doing it. An intention. An intention. Hmm. And that's, it was interesting to listen to his. His take on it. Yeah. But, you know, I, we'll get into this very soon. We'll get into that next. Okay. <laughs> but, so it's interesting. Uh, I would search for the Where Did the Road Go podcasts interview with Thomas Spriggs. Okay. Because he is building off David Politis, his work with the yeah. Missing 411. Now we get to theories. Uh, as usual, there's two big theories mm -hmm. and sub-theories. Big theory number one, it's not really happening. Ugh. That it's... Uh, yeah, one but they're th talking to police. I know, I know. Sub-theory number one is that these are all natural deaths or animal attacks that are getting blown out of proportion. Okay. And I could understand that, sure. but uh, David Politis says that he specifically takes he, out yeah, any that, that could be 
animal attacks or anything like mental that. mental illness was yeah. another one you yeah. said like he does he claims that he does a really good job of vetting which ones are legitimate missing right. 411 cases i think it was animal attacks mental illness and maybe even um drugs yeah yeah but Drug he, use. Uh, but these people but uh people who are skeptical about this say that these are cases where that it's parent uh paradoxical undressing you know it is frostbite it is this person got disoriented and walked off into the reeds when they could have been on trail the whole time you know so a lot of people say like it's the, just that the medical examiner would come up with a cause of death then. yeah yeah and sub theory number two is that it is the texas sharpshooter fallacy which is really interesting the heck i've never heard uh, of this. that came from I had never heard of it before, but it's called the Texas Sharpshooter Fallacy, and it came from an old, cart, like a, a drawn comic strip of a cowboy shooting holes in the side of a barn, and then he goes up and paints targets around wherever he hit with the holes. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So the Texas Sharpshooter... Making it look like he hit the, the bullseye The Texas Sharpshooter Fallacy happens when differences in data are ignored, but similarities in data are overemphasized. Due to this faulty reasoning, a false conclusion is inferred. Okay. It's saying that Politis is building up the mystery... Finding finding, finding things that... And, like, pushing back things that don't fit his... Right. You know, what am I looking for? What word am I looking for? His theory. Theory. Yeah. yeah. That he like pushes those away and then fo- over focuses on ones that fit his criteria. Belief. Criteria. Thank you. <laughs> English major. English major here. Uh, Me too. I just never completed my. Uh, you know, degree. a Reddit user, uh, a Reddit user said, quote, I have listened to David Field dozens of questions from people. Someone can ask him a long rambling question that involves the most wild paranormal scenarios that can be imagined. He will patiently listen, then respond with something along the lines of could be, or that's an interesting scenario, or that's the million dollar question. Yet, in instances when someone starts to ask a question that raises perfectly plausible scientific explanations, he can't cut them off fast enough or change the subject fast enough. He does not really need to speculate or give opinions because he is pretty good at letting others do the work for him. And this is one place where I think he is extremely smart because Not if, if he says, I think it's Bigfoot, it's going to become lumped into Bigfoot stuff. Right, if he says, I it think seriously. it's aliens, it's going to become lumped in with alien stuff. Right. This way, it's its own entity. It's its own thing. So he is very cagey in not saying what he thinks it is and letting other people do that. Although I feel, yeah, I guess. I'm not saying that it's shady that he's doing that, but no, I think I it's think very so smart of him not because of he, you know, a lot of people believe he thinks it's Bigfoot because he's a big Bigfoot researcher. Oh, I didn't know But that. then, like you said, if he says it's Bigfoot doing this, it's just going to get lumped in with thousands of other Bigfoot things. And nobody will take it seriously. And nobody will take it seriously. So this is a really intelligent way of not... Although that documentary last night had a pretty, uh, yeah. they never yep. said Bigfoot, but yep. everybody who knows Bigfoot knows the Sierra sounds or the samurai yeah. chatter. So, And another Reddit user states, quote, the more of his presentations I watch and listen to, the more I am inclined to agree. Although I am sure when he went into this, he wasn't looking to make a buck, but the opportunity presented itself and now he's invested into his own brand. If looking at the overall picture, the amount of cases that fall into his parameters is probably a smallish percentage of the total number of missing persons cases in total. Of course, he'd have no reason to investigate cases that have a very clear explanation, though. However, the more specific you get, the more prone you are into falling into observational bias. Lack of evidence isn't evidence of the paranormal. 
Even within the sample of Politis' cases, the vast majority probably have completely reasonable explanations. However, it's the really weird ones that get me. Even if less than 1% of all of Politis' cases have a paranormal explanation, that's still more than zero. And in that case, what the hell is going on? Right. I so, agree with that. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that are very skeptical of his research. He's a former cop, though. Like, there, there's... there's I don't know some stuff that kind of has brought up red flags with me like one of the podcasts he talks about we're going to get into this i was actually going to include it in this but this could be a mini mystery on its own i won't say what it is but it's a case where he said an airplane has never been found when i looked and they believe they found the airplane in 1986 okay and somebody else claims they found it so when he says it's never been found it kind of maybe has and he didn't bring that up so that's where I think, but I get this. I get this. Like if I believe something, I don't want to listen to other people's right. stuff that shoots down what I believe. I just don't. Right. You know, so there's a lot of people that think it's mm-hmm. basically a Texas sharpshooter fallacy that he's overemphasizing things that he thinks we're going to think are weird while not wanting anything to do with any reasonable explanations for it. Mm-hmm. So those are under the theories that it's not really happening. Main theory number two, it is happening. And there's a lot of sub-theories for this that we're going to... We've talked about them in the past, but we're going to get into them again. Okay. Sub-theory number one, Bigfoot. Yes. I mean, this is a common one that people think it's a Bigfoot-type creature. I Uh, actually don't really buy that explanation. I don't either. I don't either. A lot of people think that this is his main theory that he won't say because his website was originally devoted to Bigfoot research. I just feel like there'd be traces of people left behind. Yeah. Yeah. I say I could, I wrote, I could maybe see this having been his first theory, but I think it was quickly changed. It doesn't make sense. Where are the bodies? Why are the bodies that are found not showing any evidence of being brutally beaten or attacked or whatever a Bigfoot would do? Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I don't think it's a Bigfoot. I think that was when he started this. I do think that's what he thought it was. And I believe he realized at some point that that couldn't be what it was. Maybe some of the cases. Yeah, possibly. But that can't be the explanation for possibly. all of them. I mean, it's very possible. I think uh, aliens, and I know you're going to get to this, is a more plausible explanation. Seriously? I think it explains why clothing is removed. Yeah. yeah. And why people true. are found very true. naked. Very true. In places they couldn't have gotten to. Sorry, am I ruining? No, you're not ruining. You're not ruining. I didn't have it in here, but one of my favorite sub theories is still somebody suggested that David Politis is actually killing these people in order to promote his books. Oh my god, that's awesome! I love that theory. Yeah, I was like, huh? That's a movie waiting to happen. Yeah, it is. But theory number one, Bigfoot. Okay. Sub theory number two, they are being abducted by woods people. Not super far fetched. Dennis Martin, we talked about in our first episode Not about this. Not like some mythological group no, of people, like people just living like in the woods. Backwoods people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dennis Martin, that we talked about in our first episode about this, when he disappeared, witnesses said that they saw a mountain man covered in hair carrying the boy or carrying a deer or carrying something. You know, so is it possible that these are just people that live in the woods? Why do they have to describe them as covered in hair, though? Because now know. I'm going I back to Bigfoot. <laughs> Uh, there was a story. I think people like that, though, who live in the backwoods are extremely territorial, though. Yeah. So I could see them getting really, really angry that people are hiking through what they consider to be their home. Yeah. And deciding to do something about it. Uh, there was a story that came out of Oregon, of Portland. I keep Everybody says I say Oregon weird. Oregon. Is it like Oregon? Is it Oregon? I say Oregon. Okay. I'm just going to say Portland, that there is a park in Portland called Forest Park. Uh, it's like a it's like a Central Park where it's in the middle of the big city. Okay. 
where it was discovered that a dad and his young daughter had been living in the park for four years before they were discovered. Wow. Frank, a man named Frank, and his daughter had been surviving with a small shelter, sleeping bags, a Bible, rakes, a rope swing, a tilled vegetable garden, and a stack of encyclopedias that the 12-year-old was being taught from. And they lived there for four years in this park in the middle of a city before anybody found them. And the girl was supposedly, like, super smart. For, like, 12 years old, she was, like, brilliant because he was teaching her from the encyclopedias okay that right there is an argument for bigfoot oh existing yeah well yeah bigfoot say, how come nobody's yeah, ever found exactly evidence? bigfoot existing or woods people live in the woods people right. can easily live in the woods but again like bigfoot why wouldn't you assume that these people are being killed in a way like stabbing or right. by the not the mysterious ways that they're found dead right you that, know it doesn't so make a lot of sense i don't really buy into the woods people theories either sub theory number three they are being killed by drug cartels. Again, yeah. wouldn't there be gunshot well, wounds? Well, in a May 29th, 2018 Sacramento Bee article called Illegal Pod Grow was found in Yosemite Forests. Officials cracked down citing catastrophic poisons. It's been said that drug growing sites, which have been found in Yosemite National Park and other iconic parks, are guarded by individuals with weapons and protected with booby traps, have been a problem for authorities in California for decades. But the recent discovery that banned pesticides at the sites are polluting water and poisoning endangered species pushed authorities to act. The cartels have in the last couple of years taken to using a pesticide called carboforin, which has been illegal for all purposes in the state of California for 10 years. They are not using it as a pesticide. They're using it as a rodenticide to kill the animals that will come and eat the plants at the grow sites. They're just throwing it wholesale on the ground where the animals are eating it. This is a game changer because it's a lethal poison. So on top of things just like the booby traps, which include things like fish hooks hung from eye level, or, you know, the old where you step on a pit with spikes covered in feces and get an infection and die, uh, the potential poison might be around. So is it possible that this is the cause of some of the deaths, hallucinations, disappearances? Wouldn't it show up in a toxicology report? You would think. But that shows up in a list of possible... You know, causes is is drug growers or drug cartels, but I think there would still be visible evidence of that being what you were killed by, right? Not just laying there on the ground from exposure, no visible injuries, yeah, with no visible injuries. So that's theory number three: drug cartels, drug growers. And do they make you take your shoes off? Like (sighs) apparently, (laughs) or the poison makes you do that? I don't. I don't know. Okay. Sub theory number four: not buying it. Aliens. Okay. And this kind of ties in with the Maccabee story where her sighting of the cloaked figure in the trees coincided with the strange lights that mm-hmm. the students saw at the field. Right. So I'm I'm I can't dismiss aliens as quickly as I can dismiss Bigfoot right. or drug cartels or anything like that because it kind of does make sense that that's a possibility. I think it can explain why people travel impossible distances yeah yeah and why they're like you said why their clothes are missing or on backwards right or stuff like that so i don't know aliens maybe don't understand clothes (laughs) and a lot of times we joke about aliens being one of the theories but in this one it's actually kind of like it's plausible plausible. sub theory number five these people are disappearing in abandoned mines or caves Hmm. possibly but then what about the ones that are found in the middle in the middle of a a trail you know it's not somebody that's searched yeah five times Yep. I, it's, you know, is it possible that all sure of these in of some way are responsible for all of these? I don't know. 
You know what I'm saying? Like this disappearance could be this, this disappearance could yeah, yeah, be that. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. I don't think they're all being caused by the same thing. No. I don't think that's possible. No. But it, you know, maybe abandoned mines or caves are one of them, but At it doesn't it doesn't fit into the like the main criteria. Right. You know. You I don't think know. that caves and things like that would be searched. Yep. Sub theory number six, serial killers. And I, one thing I didn't get into with this that I was going to is that one of uh, David Politis's books is strictly devoted to what we know as the smiley face oh, killers. Really? Where, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he's got a whole book about people that disappeared, mm. like college students disappearing right. near bodies of water and then turning up dead and drowned. And a smiley face is found nearby. Yeah, so he is tying that in now with the missing 411 stuff. But I didn't look into any of that because I want to save that for when we do have an episode on the smiley face murders slash drowning college kids slash missing 411. So he's tying in that saying that, you know, that's, is it serial killers killing these students? And it would explain why no trace is found because a person could intentionally go back and remove all traces. And one thing that he said that's interesting that I've never personally come across in any of my research is he says a lot of times some of these people that are dead are found to have traces of GHB. Hmm. In their system. Roofies. Yeah, which is the date rape drug. Right. And that's a common thing with the smiley face victims is right. a lot They've of them have, drugged. you know, like the guy that disappeared from the back of the trail. Could that have been a serial killer that snuck up behind him, grabbed him, killed him, and they've never been found? Possibly. I just think that But it doesn't really account hard. for the other cases where the body's found and there's no... I think it'd be really hard to snatch someone off the trail without any anybody. noise. yeah. yeah. Some of the, you'd have to drag them off the trail, and you're telling me nobody would hear that? Some of these could be serial killers, well, maybe. I think so. But again, that could be... Or they fell victim to whoever they were out there with. Yeah. I mean, like the guy humans with, are scary. Yeah, yeah, they are. So that's another theory, serial killers. Okay. Possible? I don't know. I think for some of the cases. Yep. Sub-theory number seven, we didn't have in here, but I actually really like it because you know I'm into this. And sub-theory number seven goes with the simulation theory that we are living in a computer simulation. And that theory says that these areas where people are disappearing are like a video game's glitch areas. Sure. Where, all, where, where you just, you know, like if we're just characters or like simulations living in a, a computer simulation. Right. That those people just disappear because that's a glitch area where stuff just happens like that. And, and these people, somewhere else. these people theorize that those places are kept as national parks. So people don't, so it's not full of people because whoever is running the simulation knows that people glitch out and disappear in that area. So that's why those are kept as national parks. Don't know if I buy it, but that ties in with the simulation theory that those people just glitch out like a video game character, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't reappear know. later elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I just, I don't necessarily buy it, hmm. but you know I'm all about simulation theory. Yeah. So I think that's kind of a cool idea. Okay. Sub-theory number eight, it's government experimentation or a government program. Hmm. Uh, Polites, and this was interesting, Polites ties in the missing 411 phenomenon with the stuff going on at Skinwalker Ranch. And he kind of hints that he thinks Skinwalker Ranch is a government experiment on cloaking devices like one thing that was interesting was on skinwalker ranch at one point they had five different remote viewing sessions done by five former cia and department of defense employees okay. who were in a remote viewing 
they were all given a set of coordinates and were asked to describe the area, and they were given the coordinates for the ranch, and they said that they saw some sort of military presence, most likely the Navy. And in some accounts, I saw that they said there seemed to be men on a ship wearing weird glasses. And okay. Yeah, I, I'm not going to get into this really right now because in the near future, we are going to have an episode about gang stalking and electronic harassment. Okay. And one of the things we're going to talk about is somebody wrote a book about how they believe that the government has this cloaking technology. And in order to bypass the cloaking technology, you wear special night vision goggles oh. and that that's what these people on the ship were wearing. Okay. So Politis kind of ties that in with Skinwalker Ranch being a government experiment on cloak, you know, like they're testing out their cloaking capabilities and what they can do. I just don't really buy it because I cannot see the government killing people testing out their right. cloaking stuff in the woods. That makes very little sense to me. I could see them testing out their cloaking stuff. Like maybe say this does exist, say cloaking technology does exist. I could see them using it to watch people to see if they can be noticed, but I can't see them using it to kill abduct people. and kill right. people. But there's some people sense. that believe that this is a government test or experiment going on. That that's why these people are missing. Hmm. Don't necessarily buy it. I don't know. I feel like all of these theories could explain a portion. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But I don't think anything can be explained no. by one theory. Nope. Or and now, sub-theory nine, and this is the one that I kind of buy. It is some unknown type of creature or entity. I kind of buy that. And now uh, we got some more Reddit stories, which I thought were interesting. Again, these are from Reddit, so take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> right. Definitely Anybody could write anything a, on there. Yeah, definitely take this with a grain of salt, but these were interesting to me. And we're gonna be there's going to be sub-theories for unknown types of creatures or entities. So this is a Reddit story posted by Five Lost Babes. Ooh. That's her name. I've only told two people this, but now I'm telling everybody. I have no choice. It's consuming me. My brother believed me, but he was sure it was someone physically messing with me. Personally, I'm leaning towards demons, aliens, or cloaked military forces. It was a beautiful fall day, and I had the day off work, and I just moved into a new home in an area I had grown up in. It was nice to be back in my old neighborhood, close to great hiking trails, creeks, and a waterfall. I took off down the old Indian trail I knew like the back of my hand. As children, all the neighborhood kids played in the creek and forest. As teenagers, we spent countless summer days and nights being naughty there. When my children were young, I had them out there every weekend. As teenagers, they are... <laughs> okay, never mind. As teenagers, they as well hung out there as with their neighborhood friends. You thought it was well hung. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> what, where is this going? As teenagers, they as well hung out there with their neighborhood friends. <laughs> When I reached the end of the steep trail, which stops at the creek, I sat on the rocks, laid back, took a break, and just stared at the sky. It was a perfect blue day, and the sun was shining proudly on the world. I thought about that as I was sitting there just relaxing and contemplating life. I was thinking about what a beautiful, perfect place we live in. We really do have it all. I stood up to walk along the creek to reach the waterfall at the end. I took a few steps and stopped. I just stood there frozen, looking in front of me. I felt there was something there. There was nothing. I still stood there. I couldn't move any further. I still sensed something. Then this overwhelming thought came into my head loud and clear, and it said, quote, You're not perfect. Humans will always have fear. Fear is what will destroy you. Something made me run. I was overcome with fear like I have never felt in my life. Something was there, and I couldn't see it, and it was chasing me. 
I ran back the way I came at top speed, panic speed. I heard steps, not like normal steps exactly, but like little rocks or stones lightly landing on the forest floor without rolling or rustling the leaves. As I'm running up the trail, I glance back. I see nothing, still running in a panic. I start to think this is all ridiculous. I don't scare this easy. I stop on the trail and I turn around and stand looking. Within a split second, I can still hear the steps following me, yet I can't see anything unusual. I run and reach the top. I'm five minutes from home. I run home. I call my brother. Of course, my brother believed me. He could hear the fear in my voice. He was very sensible about the whole thing. He suggested that it was just teenagers fooling around like we used to all those years ago, or suggested it might just be a creepy man who was watching me. I agreed with him, but I knew different. Something did communicate with me that day and chased me out of the forest in a feeling of pure dread. So that's interesting. Hmm. Something that can communicate telepathically. Yeah, and was chasing her, but she couldn't see it. Aliens. I don't know. Someone named Michael Butler said, I lived in Humboldt County, California in the 90s. A friend of mine was growing illegal substances out deep in the woods on Mount Shasta and ran into something out there that scared the hell out of him. He was out there for weeks on end by himself. This man was a scary physical specimen, strong as an ox that feared no man. He worked construction all of his life. Something chased and tracked him for hours off that mountain. He thought they were men, but I know better now. Jake had extreme endurance as he hiked all over these mountains carrying bags of material. He could not outrun these creatures, and his cardio was top-notch. He was in prime physical condition. They were just toying with him like a cat toys with a mouse. If you're not mentally prepared to fight these entities, you might feel like jumping off a cliff to your death is a better solution than being eaten by these things. Their projection of soul-crushing fear and implanting of irrational thoughts are their primary weapons. As for some that are found without shoes, this could be viewed as an instinctive defensive mechanism. They may have removed them, not knowing exactly why, but it's stored in our genetic memory. It's instinctive, and it allows you to ground yourself to the earth and channel energy. Eh, possibly. Mm. I feel like if I need to flee, though, yeah. if I don't have shoes, I have dreams about that. Yeah. <laughs> like not having yeah. shoes on. Uh, call her to Coast to Coast, which is a really, really good. Yeah. I listen to a ton of their podcasts. A caller coast to coast said, quote, what you are describing tonight, especially the woman saying she saw something that looked like it was wrapped in saran wrap. That's something that I had seen in the urban city back in the early 90s. I was sitting in my car with an older friend of mine and I looked up. I looked at a tree and it looked distorted in the tree. My friend was looking at it, too. And I told my friend, I said, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And he said, I'm looking at the one on the left. That's when I realized there were two of them, and when they focused their vision on us, they had the most bloodshot, red, glowing-type eyes. But the one thing I noticed was that they noticed us, and it was almost like I could understand what they were saying to each other, and they were in amazement that we could actually see them. Long story short, we darted out of there as fast as we could. I mean, it was just our reaction. We were scared out of our minds. I talked to somebody a couple of years later, an older guy in the neighborhood about it, and he said, quote, Oh, you guys saw the tree people. A lot of people for years have been seeing them around here. They don't have any shape to them, and usually when people have seen them, people in the neighborhood would disappear around that time. Oh, boy. So, hmm. I don't know. On the website called Cryptid Antiquarian, an article by Elias J. Ager called, quote, What is Taking These People says... When I first began my research, I was struck by the similarities to the Native American legends of the Wendigo. The Wendigo is a creature symbolizing the frozen north, starvation, and cannibalism. It was said to have been created when a human resorted to cannibalism and was linked to winter storms. When preying on humans, some legends said that it could fly down and rip a person right out of their shoes. Hmm. In the mythology of the Philippines, it is said there is a creature called a Tyanuk. 
It lures people by mimicking a baby crying, something that few humans could ignore. Supposedly, one of the only ways to escape a Tyanook was to take off your clothes and turn them inside out. What? In some South American folklore, there's a story of the Patasola, a monster that lures people by taking the form of a beautiful woman or a loved one. According to popular belief, she inhabits mountain ranges, forests, and other heavily wooded or jungle-like areas. At the edges of these places, primarily at night, she lures male hunters, loggers, miners, millers, and animal herders. She also interferes with their daily activities. She blocks shortcuts through the jungle and disorients hunters and throws hunting dogs off the site of their game. The Patasola is usually regarded as protective of nature and the forest animals and unforgiving when humans enter their domain to alter or destroy it. Hmm. So there's that. It's interesting that part of these legends are really specific to some of the circumstances. Yeah, of the four of the missing four one one cases. Like this the one inside out clothes and the shoes. This next one I hadn't seen before, but I'm really interested in this as a theory, and that is the theory that these are being caused by fairies. Hmm. Which is I've never seen. Yeah. Reddit user Roger Dodger stated, quote, after reading many of these cases, both from the book and others not covered by David Politis, I'm inclined to believe that a majority of these cases involve the work of the Fae, which is the group of fairies, which is a group of fairies, the Fae. Mm -hmm. Now, before you write this off, you have to realize that fairies are not what the mainstream media have shown us in childhood. Most of them are not tiny creatures composed of light fluttering around sparkling pixie dust a la Tinkerbell. Exactly. These beings are very much real with some human-like qualities. They can range anywhere from four inches to seven feet tall. They are a very diverse group of creatures, much like humans. The fae can manifest itself into a physical nature at will, but they are for the most part spiritual by nature. They tend to take people into mountains, hills, caves, but these places can only be visited by some means of interdimensional travel or shift. I remember reading a story by two different sources of a cave in Virginia or North Carolina that actually has a city booming full of fairy people living inside a mountain. Allegedly, it can only be accessed by a weeks-long fast and by an escorting fae. I agree that whatever this is has an intelligence, but again, that's where the fairies may come in. These creatures clearly know how to plan. They are able to use something called glamour. By that, I mean presentation, and they also seem to have a mind of their own. And then he quotes a bunch of passages from a 1910 book called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries by W.Y. Evans Wentz. And these are some passages from the book about fairies. In a passage about fairy preserves, it says, quote, A heap of stones in a field should not be disturbed, although needed for building, especially if they are a part of an ancient area. The fairies are said to live inside the pile, and to move the stones would be most unfortunate. Blair Witch. But it also comes in with a lot of these missing 401 cases are by piles of rocks, stones, and these are believed to be fairy living areas. Another section called the Fairy Procession says, quote, We were told as children that as soon as night fell, the fairies would form in a procession across roads, past certain bushes which have not been disturbed for ages, and join with other groups of fairies. We were afraid, and our nurses always brought us home before the advent of the fairy procession. One of the passes used by this procession happened to be between two houses, and it is said that a man went out of one of these houses at the wrong time, and when found, he was dead. The fairies had taken him because he interfered with their procession. Another passage was where fairies live. Quote, In a spot near Oak Quarter, another place was pointed out where the fairies are often seen dancing. The name of it means the little bog of the dance. 
Other sorts of fairies live in the sea, and these are known to go over the water and create freakish storms and wind. So that kind of ties in with the missing 411 stuff. Mm-hmm. Another passage says, quote, there's a group of them called the gentry. In response to my wish, this description of the gentry was given. These folk are the grandest I have ever seen. They are far superior to us, and that is why they are called the gentry. They are not a working class, but more of a military class, tall and noble appearing. They are a distinct race between our own and that of spirits, they have told me. Their qualifications are tremendous. They said, quote, we could cut off half the human race, but we would not, for we are expecting salvation. And I know a man two or three years ago whom they struck down with paralysis. Their sight is so penetrating that I think they could see through the earth. They have a silvery voice, quick and sweet. The music they play is beautiful. They take the whole body and soul of young and intellectual people who are interesting, transmuting the body to a body just like their own. I asked them once if they ever died, and they said, quote, No, we are always kept young. Once they take you and you taste of their food, you cannot come back. You are changed willingly to one of them, and you live with them forever. They sound like vampires. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they do. It's very weird. Another section about those who return from this land said, quote, Persons in a short trance-like state for two or three days duration are said to be away with the fairies enjoying a festival. The festival may be very material in its nature or may be purely spiritual. Sometimes one may thus go to fairy for an hour or two. One may remain there for 7, 14, or 21 years. The mind of a person coming out of fairyland is usually a blank as to what has been seen and done there. Or the person knows well enough about fairyland but is prevented from communicating the knowledge. A certain woman of whom I know and said she had forgotten all about her experiences in fairy, but a friend who heard her objected and said that she did remember, but she just didn't want to tell. So Hmm. there's that. So that could explain these people that come back and don't remember where they were. And one last section from the book says, quote, I have been told by a friend in California who is a student of physical sciences that there exists in certain part of that state notably in the Yosemite Valley, invisible races comparable to the gentry. These California fairy races are said to exist now, as the Irish and Scottish invisible races are said to exist now, by seers who can behold them, and like the latter races, are described as the distinct order of beings who have never been in physical embodiments. These Yosemite invisible tribes are probably but a few of many such tribes scattered throughout the North America continent, and equally with their Celtic relatives, they are described as a warlike race, with more than human powers over physical nature and are able to subject or destroy men. And it's interesting that they said the Yosemite right. is where these exist, and yeah. that's where a majority of the missing 411 disappearances happen. Hmm. So is it possible that much... it's fairies? I mean, yeah. it's a lot of it. It was really interesting to me how much, you know, maybe it's a Parallels kind it's, maybe it's a kind of creature that lives in the woods that we just don't know, that yeah. we just aren't aware of, that is causing all this to happen. Hmm. I don't know. And there's just, I got two more weird things that are kind of like theories, but things that people think are happening. And that is, number one, something is physically picking these people up. A Reddit user called AbelArcher83 says, I was maybe almost a missing 411 case. And then he goes on to say, quote, I created a new Reddit account because I am not looking for attention and nor do I want my usual Reddit account linked to this. I post this because I need to share what happened to me and also because it could help someone make necessary links to unraveling this phenomenon in the future. I am currently in New Mexico. I have been hiking in the Oregon Mountains a lot the last couple weeks, particularly both the Dripping Springs and Pine Tree Trails. I became fixated on the Boyd Sanatorium. Its presence really spoke to me. It's off the Dripping Springs Trail, and I ended up stealth camping in the actual sanatorium for two nights. 
While stealth camping at the sanatorium, I kept having the same vivid dream about a large cave that I saw higher in the mountains when I first hiked the Pine Tree Trail. A massive prehistoric-looking bird would fly out of the cave, swoop down on me, and fly me back up to the cave entrance. The bird then pecks and bites at me, forcing me deeper into the cave. There is a big pile of human bones. I think the bird eats people, and I expect that I might be next. I see something out of place among the bones. It is a skull made of crystal. I pick it up, and I hear a loud and truly awful scream, and I wake up. Creepy. That's interesting. The crystal skull is supposed to be a real thing. Yeah. I go back to sleep after that, and then the same dream restarts. All night and every night I stealth camped at the sanatorium, I had the same dream. Even knowing I was likely going to dream the same dream and trying to become lucid in a dream, I could not do it. I wanted so much to investigate this cave and the skull in greater detail, but I was stuck in that repeating dream as is, with no differences as far as I can tell. The last night I stealth camped at the sanatorium, I awoke from the dream as usual, but this time I caught a glimpse of something very tall and very thin watching me. I am over six feet tall. I would guess maybe it was near seven feet tall and around 50 feet away from me. It was early morning near 6 a.m. and it was just starting to brighten. I do not know what it was that I saw, but it quickly moved around the corner of the sanatorium. I got up because I am no coward. I ran after it. I was prepared for a fire in the sky or a communion-like alien encounter, but thankfully I got nothing. It was gone. I searched for almost an hour, but I found nothing. I have not stealth camped there since. When I decided what to do instead was to go see the cave from my reoccurring dream near the Pine Tree Trail. I stayed the night in the campgrounds at the foot of the trailhead, and for the next two days, I hiked around the trail. I asked the people I ran into what they knew about the cave, and other than just saying it was simply a cave, nothing more. Nobody said anything. Since hiking the Oregon Mountains, I've come to enjoy taking pictures of all the tarantula. I've never seen so many, and that's what I was out doing when it happened. It was near 7 o'clock p.m. I was wandering back from the primitive campground situated at the halfway point on the Pine Tree Trail Loop. It was getting dark, and I was using the flashlight on my cell phone. I spotlighted a big, the biggest I've ever seen, tarantula making its way across the trail. I started to ready the camera when I realized I couldn't move. I was very confused. I wanted to move. I wanted my finger to push the camera icon on my phone. I wanted to look around and see what the hell was going on, but I could not move. I was frozen, and I still cannot wrap my mind around it. I've had sleep paralysis in the past, and it was sort of like that but I was able to fight my way out of it. This was different. I couldn't get any momentum to start fighting against it. I can't say exactly how long I was in that state. A minute, maybe, but not much more. I don't get scared easily, but this had me going that way for sure. What happened next definitely pushed me into scared. Something, I don't know what, started to lift me off the ground. There was no light beam, no rope, no nothing. It was like the bird in my dream, but nothing was there. I made my mind up right there and then that no way in hell was I going to get got by whatever this was. I started to get furiously mad and from deep inside me, like I took a psychic journey to my very center. That's the only way I can describe it. To discover the reason, any reason for me not to get taken away. I must have found one. I strained and strained and eventually I found a mental foothold and began pushing against this force. Little by little, I began to resist the paralysis. I was suddenly dropped maybe three or four feet to the ground on my stomach. I am not sure how one grabs the earth, but that is what I did. That something was still attempting to lift me. I thrashed and rolled around hard. I was in a real fight with this thing. I kept looking up, but I couldn't see anything. That was the worst part of it. Had it been a drone or a massive bird, I could have set my mind against it and focused my rage toward it. There was nothing there, but I think there was something outside my perception. Was it cloaked? Maybe. I don't know. 
This lasted a couple minutes more, me wrestling against a force which intended to lift me. I believe it wanted to stay locked on me in case it could paralyze me again. Maybe that's why certain people are found dead from injuries that indicate they died from a fall, because maybe they did really fall. Maybe they fought through the paralysis, and whatever it was dropped them, dropped them from a far greater height than I was in. The very tangible feeling of being lifted finally ceased, and I made like terrified rabbit down a trail to the camping area. I was happy to see other people camping there. I was in no condition to drive. Just to, I was just emotionally and physically shaken. I did not sleep much, and what little I did, I do not remember dreaming. There is a chemical that does keep you paralyzed in your sleep. Whatever caused this, maybe this somehow used that chemical to paralyze people. Was the dream something that just led me there? I believe that whatever I saw at the sanatorium played a role in this. But why wouldn't it just get me then? Are there any cases in the missing 401 accounts about someone being drawn to a place or dreaming of a place, and that is where they went missing? Maybe my experience will help someone. I hope so. Today was a little rough. I keep thinking it'll happen again, and I'm considering leaving New Mexico, but then again, it could happen somewhere else. That is also something that really bothers me, too. At first, these things seem to have been regulated to national parks, but now there are urban cases which draw parallels, especially being carried away. So I might just be screwed. Anyways, if this helps anyone, I will be happy for it. We've talked about the birds of prey theory yes. in past episodes. Yes. I think that that could be plausible for a small child. Yeah. Not a grown man. No, exactly. There's no bird that exactly. big. I'm That's going to lift this guy off the ground. Right. You know, mm. so that's bizarre. The paralysis is strange. That's bizarre. He says he was being lifted off the ground by mm. something. Could it have been sleep paralysis? I don't think when he's walking on the trail no. it's going to happen. I don't know. Hmm. But but some of these accounts do sound like something could have picked this up and picked this person up and dropped them. It would them. explain how people are found yeah. too far away to have possibly walked yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know. And the last one I'm going to talk about is the theory that something is luring these people. Okay. This was posted by Super Peyton MO22 on Reddit in a post called The Woods Most Definitely Call to Us. This user says, I've lived in a small town in Kentucky for my entire life, and because of that, I've been surrounded by mountains and the woods for years. My current house is literally nestled in the woods in the middle of nowhere, and thus outdoor activities have taken up a huge chunk of my time, especially in the summer and fall. I'm in the woods almost daily, hiking by the creeks to fish or meadows to hunt, and I know the woods and trails around my home like the back of my hand. That said, there's definitely something that calls to you when you're in the woods, especially when you're alone, and I've just now realized it after stumbling upon this group. Before, I've just brushed it off, but now it's hard for me to ignore. My parents began allowing me to hike alone when I was around 13, but I didn't get really into it about two years later when I was 15. Even then, though, I wasn't allowed to go very far, and I always had to carry a walkie-talkie with me so I could contact my family if necessary. Later, at 17, I was allowed to carry a handgun with me, but that's neither here nor there. There are stories I can tell at that age, too, but this one takes place when I was 15. Before I get into it, I should mention that I have two outside dogs, Max, a black lab, and Bo, a beagle. I've had both since I was very young, and they're super smart, always staying by my side when I'm in the woods. They always listen to me until this day. I was hiking a trail that runs up beyond my aunt's house, one that I hiked day in and day out, just about every day, enjoying the woods. It was in October, so the weather was cool, not hot, and I had been hiking for about an hour. The trail comes out on a spring that runs down from the top of this mountain. It hadn't rained lately, so the spring was mostly dry and covered in leaves. I remember looking up the mountain, which I've never hiked to the top of before, and feeling this strange call. It wasn't really a voice, but it was an urge I couldn't ignore. Keep in mind that I'm a very timid person, and hiking unfamiliar trails on my own freaks me out to this day. 
But that day, all my fear had somehow dissipated. All thought left my head. I just kept climbing higher and higher, my dogs following me. I don't even know how to describe the feeling that came over me, but I remember just staring down at my feet and feeling at peace as I climbed. There was a moment when I paused to look out at the houses below. I'd never been that high up, and I felt amazed. I took a picture on my phone, and then I called out around me for my dogs. Bo had already run off, and Max was following him running away. I called out to them frantically to stop, but they didn't listen. They disappeared. At this point, looking down the mountainside, I was very afraid. Then I looked back uphill, and this peaceful feeling came over me again, and I started hiking uphill. I couldn't stop. Eventually, I heard my walkie-talkie crackle. Everything was distorted, and I couldn't make any of the words out. I assume now that I was just out of range for it to pick up, but back then, it freaked me out. Whatever had come over me had lost its hold on my mind. My dogs were gone. Panicked, I began running back downhill. It's a wonder I didn't get hurt. As I neared the wide section of the spring near the bottom, my walkie-talkie picked back up, and I heard my dogs running downhill below me. I got home and mostly forgot about it. I just told myself I had been lost and I need to be more careful. Flash forward many years to now and I still hike. I commented a short version of this second story in another post, but I'll add it here just in case. At this point, Max is very old and no longer hikes with me, so it's just me and Bo. Last year, I hiked up to a cave behind my house I've done a million times before. And then I started following a trail I'd never fully explored just out of curiosity. Bo was ahead of me per usual, and when I called her back, she'd come. We hiked for the better part of 45 minutes following a pretty simple trail, and then I figured I better be heading home because it's going to be getting dark. And yet, I couldn't stop. I kept telling myself to go just a little bit further, see just a little bit more. I remember looking down at my feet just like before and listening to the silence of the woods around me and feeling at peace. It felt so easy to just keep going deeper and so difficult to turn around. Both felt the call too because even after I did break out of it and turn around, only because I stumbled on a route, I called back to Bo and she wouldn't stop. I had to catch up with her and physically turn her around and pet her before she'd come back down with me. I don't know if these stories belong here or not or if anyone will even read them and take them seriously, but they've been on my mind a lot. What if I hadn't stumbled over that route? What if my mom hadn't decided to contact me at that moment? How deep would I have hiked and what waited for me in those depths? I don't know what's out there, but I know this. The woods do call to us. Too long, didn't read. I had several experiences during my life when hiking, when an urge to just keep hiking deeper and deeper comes over me. Only external stimuli have ever been able to break me out of that fugue. Hmm. So that's weird. Another Reddit user responded to this with, Something similar happened to me, but I wasn't actually alone, which made it even stranger. I was hiking on a new trail with two friends, and we all felt this strong and adventurous, almost exhilarating urge to keep going down a certain path that deviated off the original trail. We hiked for maybe an hour before we all sort of at once snapped out of it and realized we had no idea where we actually were. Oh, One friend stayed calm and actually seemed like she wanted to keep going deeper. My other friend immediately had a full-blown panic attack and nearly bolted out of the woods off of the path we were on in panic mode. We turned back around, but for some reason the path felt different, like we hadn't actually gone that way, even though the first time the trail was the normal trail to us. We kept walking back for another hour before we realized we were even deeper in the woods than before and honestly had no idea where we were. The GPS maps we had on our phone were getting glitchy and our phones kept losing the signal, so honestly, all three of us at that point were starting to get very freaked out as it started getting a bit dark. Eventually, after another half hour or so, we heard an engine rev up and managed to find the road. Once we hit the pavement, our GPS signal and phone signal all came back to us at once and we had working service again. Somehow we managed to make it two towns over, almost three towns, which normally would have taken more than a few hours to accomplish walking-wise, even taking into account shortcuts through the woods. 
We had to call an Uber to get back to my car, and it was incredibly surprising during the ride how far we had gotten. I can't prove it, but we were all freaked about how much time we had lost during that day. We had somehow ended up getting that far from our original trailhead. I vowed to never go back to that trail, even though it was a trail I always felt an urge to go down as I pass it every time I went to work. My friend still gets panic attacks over what happened that day and won't go hiking anywhere to this day. Hmm. So that's weird. And another Reddit user says, six months ago, another Reddit user said, quote, I am a bow hunter and I'd like to still hunt, which is when you dress in full camo and walk through the woods rather than sit in a tree stand. Last October, I was coming down a hill into a marshy area. It was kind of late enough so that the side of the mountain was covered in shadows. I live in Pennsylvania where our mountains are completely covered in trees and it gets dark fast. When I get to the bottom of the hill, I noticed that it had gone completely silent, no sounds at all, and I felt the hair stand up on my arms, but I've been creeped out before in the woods, so this wasn't really a big deal. I kept on. I kept hunting in this general area. I've been in this area before, but I never went down this hill. I continued creeping through the woods. Mind you, I am walking very slow so you can barely hear my footsteps because deer are hard to sneak up on. And then I hear a voice call out to me from behind a thicket of small trees saying, help, and then said my name, come over here. I'm in trouble. Help. I swear to God it was my brother's voice, but my brother lives in Nevada, so it couldn't have been him, and it kept saying my name. It only took me a second to realize something wasn't right, and when I realized that, I ran faster than I ever have in my life. Only my dad knew where I was hunting that day, and that area is so huge that no one would have found me there, and he's too old to be playing tricks on me. But something out there knew my name, and it sounded just like my brother. Oh, I don't yeah. creepy. I don't know what the hell it was, but I'm never going to that section of the woods again. Ugh. So there's Here, the, the there's, stories there's a, about people hearing something say their name in a voice they recognize yeah. that they know it's impossible for that person. That's so yeah. creepy. You know, to like me. you talked about that story from the missing 411, the hunted. Uh, documentary where the guy was going around and he went off into the woods and did something lure him to go off that trail that right. he was following? And they a said lot it of was such an obvious fork in the path. Yeah, that he knew where he was going to right. and that he should not have taken that other fork. And is it possible like what something... led him that way? I think they said on there that something lured him. I mean, it could have been whatever he was there to hunt. Possibly. Maybe he was have been tracking a, an a, animal. A lot of these people that are found in places they wouldn't go is something luring them off right. the path what are they seeing what are they seeing what are they hearing you know one thing that really got me from the documentary and i don't remember if it was that story i think it was that story when they talked to the the guy from the sheriff's department that said we they never found his feet do you remember that? Yeah. They yeah, never found his yeah. feet. I thought, I thought that was but, really disturbing. You know, it's one thing for me to listen to all these podcasts and hear David Politis mention this, but when you had that guy from the sheriff's department on there saying, we don't know what happened. This makes absolutely no sense to us. Right. You know, we're we're puzzled by this. It, it holds a lot more weight with me when I see all these right. other people, like people, authority, authority figures that were searching saying, this makes no it sense to us. It doesn't make sense, yeah. No. What, I, what bothered me about that particular story is that that guy went to get supplies from a cache that was only yeah. supposed to take a few yeah. hours. His friends waited until the following afternoon to even like yeah. do anything about yeah. it. They didn't even go looking no. for him. That, I'm like, if they had gone looking for him that day, could they have found him? Yeah. It's worth watching that documentary just for that story because yeah. that story is like, they so spend what? the most time like, on that story. They find his shoes. His boots. His boots. Placed very deliberately. Yeah. And then what got me was that in a they place that they had searched already. Yes, yeah, it was. They said it was like they materialized there, like they were set there by something. Right. And then they find where he sat and apparently drank coffee. Right. In a view where of he houses. could see the houses. Yep. 
and then after they found going six miles, and then they found his dead body. Right, not there though. It, no, it was near where the backpack was yeah. found, which was really close to people's houses. So he should have been able to see these, which makes no sense. Like what happened to this guy is just bizarre. And they got like eighteen inches of snow, and he apparently walked six miles Without with his no boots. shoes on. Yeah. I don't know. They never found his socks, though, because they never found his feet. That's yeah. one thing I distinctly so, remember. So What the hell happened to his feet? <laughs> so now we get to the section of the podcast. What do you think? Ugh. Do you think there's something going on, or do you think there's nothing going on? I think there's something to it. Yeah. I mean, I guess we are sort of um, at the mercy of the person giving us the information. Yeah. So if he's withholding certain facts that make them seem not so suspicious, I wouldn't know. Yeah. So I kind of have to trust that David Politis is giving us well-researched information. Yeah. Um, so if if I'm basing off of that, is this happening? My answer is yes. Um, what and why? Yeah. I, like I said before, I think every one of those theories, except maybe the fairies, I just don't know. <laughs> I like the fairy theory. I think that I if there is something exist. in the woods that is doing this, I think it is something like the fairies. I think it is something that is doing these things that fairies can supposedly do where they can make you forget where you were. You I could be with them and they could make you... I like... I'm, I I like the fairy. Aliens are a more plausible I like the fairy though. idea. I think it could be some kind of woodland spirit that is doing this. I, I do. I almost find that more plausible than aliens. Mm, I don't know. How many people have witnessed fairies, though, and how many have witnessed UFOs What about the guy that aliens? saw the light in the woods that got taken away from his son because he was following this light? That's something a fairy would do. I'm not saying fairy per se, but I'm saying yeah. some kind of creature or entity that lives in the woods. That's like a woodland spirit mm-hmm. that can be causing this to happen, that could be mimicking someone's voice that you follow. You go into the woods because you think somebody you know is in trouble or it could be luring people. Mm-hmm. I really kind of buy the theory that it is some kind of unknown creature or entity or something that lives in the woods. Right. It could be. You know, yeah. I, I, this is one that I go back and forth on where sometimes I think this is kind of blown out of proportion that some of these are easily explainable but like that one person said if even less than one percent of these is a mystery there's something going on right like and even if the only it? case i knew about was the one we talked about from the documentary where the guy's boots appeared where they had searched yeah and then they had him sitting drinking his coffee watch seeing these houses and then he succumbs to the elements after that and dies. That makes none of that thing makes sense to me. And dies that within case, close proximity to, to civilization. Yeah, like none of that case makes sense to me. So it's just that one case alone shows that there's something weird going on. Unless someone he ran into foul play and someone planted those things there to confuse everyone. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just I, feel I don't like, know if I buy that. I don't feel like there's one explanation that fits all of them. No. I think there's probably a handful of different things that are happening yeah. that are affecting a portion of all these things. You know, one of the theories somebody said was that it is aliens and they come here cloaked to hunt like sure. like in the Predator movies. You know, yeah. I, I, I think that if this is legitimately going on, I think it is some unknown creature to us that lives in the woods and hunts us. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Like I said, I go back and forth on this one, but I think something weird is going on. I think if anything, it's bringing light to these missing person yeah. cases yeah. and causing people to pay attention to them, yeah. which is all the families could probably yes. ask for. That's what that's what David Pilates wants is he wants people to know this is going on and to 
to realize it and to maybe find cases themselves in their area right. that this is going on. So it's freaky. I love the missing 411 I stuff. I it's really so do. It's so fascinating. I just think it's really hard to come up with a theory that fits all the cases yeah. or... I like the idea that some creature is luring these people in the woods, something fairy-ish that... Or some kind of spirit. Or some kind of spirit. I don't know. It's bizarre. Yeah, it is bizarre. So... We may never know. No. <laughs> and we'll probably end up doing another and episode on this with more stories because these are like really interesting stories. And more cases keep popping up. And I think the the hard part is that the people who are found alive can't tell you what happened no, to them. No, exactly. So... Exactly. So like, do you think something is going on? Oh, definitely. Okay. I think something is going I on, I do. Too. I mean... I have my moments where I'm skeptical and I think this is all just... You know, these articles get taken out of context. Stuff gets taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth changes like a game of telephone. Right. But then I read stuff like this and I'm like, you know, when you had the guy from the sheriff's department saying, we are puzzled beyond belief about this. We don't know. This makes no sense to us. Right. Saying how odd the you circumstances know, so I, I are. I agree. I think there's something to it. Mm-hmm. I do too. So I want to say in conclusion, this was a post by a Reddit user that I really liked and wanted to use as a conclusion for this. The Reddit user says, quote, if you ever take word of caution, take this like your life depends on it. Don't go into the woods alone. Don't stray from your campsite at night. Don't answer or seek out anything that calls you mysteriously in the night. Do not believe everything you see with your own eyes. I need to repeat that like your life depends on it. Do not believe things, especially out of place people, voices, or suspicious things that you see even with your own eyes, especially when your instincts warn you. There's something out there, something that scares even grown men like me, something we won't talk about, but it's real. It has no consistent form, and it lures you. If you are a wild thing and a hunter of human beings, there's no better hunting ground than our busiest national and state parks. If you are a hunter of opportunity, then there's no better prey than the young, the weak, the old, or the alone. There's something out there so old, so skilled, so clever and cunning, not just a single being, but a species that has developed a specialized survival skill, luring and preying on lost or solitary humans. Can a predator in the natural world lure, trap, summon, or even hypnotize their prey? A quick Google search should show you hundreds of examples of such species in the animal, fish, bird, and insect kingdoms. If such a species does exist, old as man, whose success depended on the successful hunting of humans, not only would it be very clever and good at it by now, but it also have no record or memory of it in our history, just as few insects have probably ever survived an encounter with a trapdoor spider. I submit that their hunting approach is case by case. Their lures are different depending on their human prey's age, strength, or size. But I believe this. Whatever this is, is our oldest natural predator, an undiscovered predator, and it's still operating due to its skill of being able to read us like a book, hit us with a lure, a lure I've distinctly recognized several times, particularly at night just beyond the glow of the campfire, and then lead us into a trap to never be seen or heard from again. This thing exists. Something's out there. A species that's not unlike Stephen King's It. I felt the lure, tasted it, smelled it. It's the smell of food when you're hungry, company when you're lonely, music where there should be no music, beauty where there's danger. Nothing can explain the sensations, but deep down inside, you'll feel it in your gut. Something's not right. Something's waiting. Something's watching. Ask any man who survived long enough alone in the wild. There's a siren-like hunter out there that will try to lure you in. It'll own you dead to rights if you don't listen to your instincts. All very true. Yep. I think that the that old adage, listen to your gut. Yeah. Is a very, I've read articles about how it's like a chemical thing. Our bodies, we have a way of sensing when something's yeah, off. Yeah. And if you get that gut feeling that something's it's off, it's like a you primitive sense of ours that it. we got away from using. Right. You know, yes. there's a lot of people that think instincts are a sense. 
that we yeah. used to need. Intuition. Yeah, yeah. That we used to, yeah. That's how intuition. we avoided getting eaten in the forest. Yeah. When, you know, and in as days. we evolved, we didn't need that anymore. So we kind of pushed it down. Same with psychic, same with psychic anymore. powers that, yeah. that, that we just kind of subdued these because we don't need them. We anymore. rely on technology to do yeah. that for us. Yeah. So, you know, if you're in the woods and like, if I'm in the woods where I know my brother isn't and I hear him calling to me. Not going that way. No, but, but people yeah. do. People don't listen to that instinct being like, don't go there. So there's that. There's I, just, I just feel like if you feel like something's off. Something's off. Even if something, someone's crying for help, if it feels wrong. Yeah. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but A, that could be someone just trying to lure you in to murder you. Yeah. Or, or it, could, it might not even be a person. Yeah, it could like, be some sort of thing. I just feel like we have this inherent ability to sense danger and yeah. we don't listen to it enough. No. So there you go. More missing 411 stuff. Hmm. You guys wanted it, so... We gave it to we you. We gave it to you. I spent we like the last, I spent like the last, because we haven't recorded for a while, so I've spent the last couple of weeks just binging on missing 411 stuff like crazy. And walking in the woods by yourself. And walking in the <laughs> state park by myself. I don't do that. No, but. <laughs> I got out there and I'm thinking, this really isn't the brightest thing I've ever done. <laughs> At least you took a picture of where you were. Yeah, so somebody <laughs> could find me. Oh, so let us know what you guys think. I know you people are fascinated with the missing 411 stuff just as we are. I so am, what do you yeah. guys think is going on? Let us know. We, yeah. We're curious to hear what you guys think. And since this episode is running long, we'll skip a listener question. Okay. Do we want to do a pickle joke? Oh, we should because that's short. We'll do a pickle joke and then give the deets. They'll be short and sour. <laughs> that's what I did there. Okay. Oh, speaking of sour. What made the pickle break up with his fiance? What? He soured on her. <laughs> oh, boy. The picture is really what drives it home. <laughs> Pictures. He looks so mad. I know. Huh. He looks like he's sweating, but I think yeah. it's just his... I think he's afraid of her. He's a pickle. Uh, I'm going to take a picture of that. Okay. So and while you take the it. picture, I will give our deets. Perfect. You can email us at thestrangesessions at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Strange Session without the last S. Krista does a great job on Instagram at the Strange Sessions. We got a postcard in our P.O. box yesterday from listener Misty. So thank you so much, Misty. Very love, cool postcard. We love that. Yeah, it's a really cool. I would love to visit Utah. Utah is one of those places that I really do want to go I to. I think because, it's underrated. Yeah, I think it is too. I think Utah is an amazing place, and I I feel like it it, it gets tied in with Mormons. Oh, sure. I mean, when I hear Utah, I get tied. You know, that automatically goes to the Mormon hmm. stuff. But there's okay. so many, like, great amazing parks in yeah. utah like i would love to visit there's utah. probably some missing 411 cases yeah there. <laughs> i'm sure there are so thank you so much for the postcard misty but anybody wants to send us postcards we want postcards you can send it to the strange sessions p.o box 434 manitowoc wisconsin 54221-0434 we want postcards i heard quite a few you guys are putting together taste test packages for Ooh, us nice. so thank you so much for that yeah and you can always call our hotline. The, our phone number is 920-443-9602. If you have a paranormal story you want to tell us, go right ahead. You want to call and just say hi, go right ahead. We'll play those on the air. Does it play a message when you call it? No. It it's just not says like this you Google. Have the strange it's, no, it says no. It says this Google voicemail user is not currently by their phone. Okay. Because I have it set up like that. Okay. Just so, so people know are Yeah, so call a and message. leave a message. We'll play it on the air. We would love to hear from you people. Yeah. So thank you. 
we're hoping this episode worked out because we had, we had a, a buttload of audio yeah. glitches go on. Ugh. So we're going to try to paste this together into some coherent fashion and we'll see how it goes. Like every episode. Yeah, like every episode. So I think that's all we got. I think so. So from the old school media studio, from Krista and I, don't go in the woods alone. Don't yeah. get lost. Just don't do it. Don't disappear. And as always, stay, stay strange. strange. This has been an Old School Media production, executive produced by Kirk Konechny. For more information and content, please visit strangesessions.com.